Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 10, Part 3 Of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver Chapter 10 Emperors Decius, Gallus, Aemilianus, Valerian, and Gallienus Part 3 1. As the prosperity of the Franks composed one of the greatest and most enlightened nations of Europe, the powers of learning and ingenuity had been exhausted in the discovery of their unlettered ancestors. To the tales of credulity have succeeded the systems of fancy. Every passage has been sifted, every spot has been surveyed, that might possibly reveal some faint traces of their origin. It has been supposed that Pannonia, that Gaul, that the northern parts of Germany, gave birth to that celebrated colony of warriors. At length the most rational critics, rejecting the fictitious immigrants of ideal conquerors, have acquiesced in a sentiment whose simplicity persuades us of its truth. They suppose that about the year 240 a new confederacy was formed under the name of Franks, by the old inhabitants of the Lower Rhine and the Weiser. The present circle of Westphalia, the Landgraviate of Hesse, and the duchies of Brunswick and Lüneburg, were the ancient of the Chorsi, who, in their inaccessible morasses, defied the Roman arms, of the Cherusci, proud of the fame of Arminius, of the Catai, formidable by their firm and intrepid infantry, and of several other tribes of inferior power and renown. The love of liberty was the ruling passion of these Germans, the enjoyment of it their best treasure. The word that expressed that enjoyment, the most pleasing to the ear, they deserved, they assumed, they maintained the honourable appellation of Franks, or freemen, which concealed, though it did not extinguish, the peculiar names of the several states of the Confederacy. Tacit consent and mutual advantage dictated the first laws of the Union. It was gradually cemented by habit and experience. The League of the Franks may admit of some comparison with the Helvetic body, in which every canton, retaining its independent sovereignty, consults with its brethren in the common cause, without acknowledging the authority of any supreme head, or representative assembly. But the principle of the two confederacies was extremely different. A peace of two hundred years has rewarded the wise and honest policy of the Swiss. An inconsistent spirit, the thirst of rapine, and a disregard to the most solemn treaties, disgraced the character of the Franks. The Romans had long experienced the daring valour of the people of Lower Germany. The union of their strength threatened Gaul with a more formidable invasion, and required the presence of Gallienus, the heir and colleague of imperial power. 
whilst that prince and his infant son Salonis displayed in the court of Treves the majesty of the empire, its armies were ably conducted by their general Posthumus, who, though he afterwards betrayed the family of Valerian, was ever faithful to that great interests of the monarchy. The treacherous language of panegyrics and medals darkly announces a long series of victories. Trophies and titles attest, if such evidence can attest, the fame of Posthumus, who is repeatedly styled the conqueror of the Germans and the saviour of Gaul. But a single fact, the only one indeed of which we have any distinct knowledge, erases in a great measure these monuments of vanity and adulation. The Rhine, though dignified with the title of safeguard of the provinces, was an imperfect barrier against the daring spirit of enterprise with which the Franks were actuated. Their rapid devastations stretched from the river to the foot of the Pyrenees. Nor were they stopped by these mountains. Spain, which had never dreaded, was unable to resist the inroads of the Germans. During twelve years, the greatest part of the reign of Gallienus, that opulent country was the theatre of unequal and destructive hostilities. Tarragona, the flourishing capital of a peaceful province, was sacked and almost destroyed. And so late as the days of Orosus, who wrote in the fifth century, wretched cottages scattered amidst the ruins of magnificent cities still recorded the rage of the barbarians. When the exhausted country no longer supplied a variety of plunder, the Franks seized on some vessels in the ports of Spain, and transported themselves into Mauritania. The distant province was astonished with the fury of these barbarians, who seemed to fall from a new world, as their name, manners, and complexion were equally unknown on the coast of Africa. 2. In that part of Upper Saxony, beyond the Elbe, which is at present called the Marquisate of Lusca. There existed in ancient times a sacred wood, the awful seed of the superstition of the Suavi. None were permitted to enter the holy precincts without confessing, by the servile bonds and suppliant posture, the immediate presence of the sovereign deity. Patriotism contributed, as well as devotion, to consecrate the sonny world, or word of the Semnons. It was universally believed that the nation had received its first existence on that sacred spot. At stated periods, the numerous tribes who gloried in the Suavic blood resorted thither by their ambassadors, and the memory of their common extraction was perpetrated by barbaric rites and human sacrifices. The wide-extended name of the Suavi filled the interior countries of Germany, from the banks of the Uder to those of the Danube. They were distinguished from the other Germans by their peculiar mode of dressing their long hair, which they gathered into a rude knot on the crown of their head, and they delighted in an ornament that showed their ranks more lofty and terrible in the eyes of the enemy. Jealous as the Germans were of military renown, they all confessed the superior valour of the Suavi, and the tribes of the Espetes and Tencteri, who, with a vast army, encountered the dictator Caesar, 
declared that they esteemed it not a disgrace to have fled before a people to whose arms the immortal gods themselves were unequal. In the reign of the Emperor Caracalla, an innumerable swarm of servi appeared on the banks of the main, and in the neighbourhood of the Roman provinces, in quest either of food, of plunder, or of glory. The hasty army of volunteers gradually coalesced into a great and permanent nation, and as it was composed from so many different tribes, assumed the name of Almany, or Olman, to denote at once their various lineage and their common bravery. The latter was soon felt by the Romans in many a hostile inroad. The Almany fought chiefly on horseback, but their cavalry was rendered still more formidable by a mixture of light infantry, selected from the bravest and most active of the youth, whom frequent exercise had inured to accompany the horsemen in the longest march, the most rapid charge, or the most precipitate retreat. This warlike people of Germans had been astonished by the immense preparations of Alexander Severus. They were dismayed by the arms of his successor, a barbarian equal in valour and fierceness to themselves. But still hovering on the frontiers of the empire, they increased the general disorder that ensued after the death of Decius. They inflicted severe wounds on the rich provinces of Gaul. They were the first who removed the veil that covered the feeble majesty of Italy. A numerous body of the Almany penetrated across the Danube and through the Riotine Alps into the plains of Lombardy, advanced as far as Ravenna, and displayed the victorious banners of barbarians almost in sight of Rome. The insult and danger rekindled in the Senate some sparks of their ancient virtue. Both the emperors were engaged in far distant wars, Valerian in the east, and Gallienus on the Rhine. All the hopes and resources of the Romans were in themselves. In this emergency, the senators resumed the defiance of the Republic, drew out the Praetorian guards, who had been left to garrison the capital, and filled up their numbers by enlisting into the public service the stoutest and most willing of the plebeians. The Almany, astonished with the sudden appearance of an army more numerous than their own, retired into Germany, laden with spoil, and their retreat was esteemed as a victory by the unwarlike Romans. When Gallienus received the intelligence that his capital was delivered from the barbarians, he was much less delighted than alarmed with the courage of the Senate, since it might one day prompt them to rescue the public from domestic tyranny as well as from foreign invasion. His timid ingratitude was published to his subjects, in an edict which prohibited the senators from exercising any military employment, and even from approaching the camps of the legions. But his fears were groundless. The rich and luxurious nobles, sinking into their natural character, accepted as a favour this disgraceful exemption from military service. And as long as they were indulged in the enjoyment of their baths, their theatres, and their villas, they cheerfully resigned the more dangerous cares of the empire to the rough hands of peasants and soldiers. Another invasion of the Almany, of a more formidable aspect, but more glorious event, is mentioned by a writer of the lower empire. Three hundred thousand are said to have been vanquished in a battle near Milan, 
by Gallienus in person, at the head of only ten thousand Romans. We may, however, with great probability, ascribe this incredible victory, either to the credulity of the historian, or to some exaggerated exploits of one of the emperor's lieutenants. It was by arms of a very different nature that Gallienus endeavoured to protect Italy from the fury of the Germans. He espoused Piper, the daughter of a king of the Marcomanni, a Suevic tribe, which was often confounded with the Almani in their wars and conquests. To the father, as the price of his alliance, he granted an ample settlement in Pannonia. The native charms of unpolished beauty seemed to have fixed the daughter in the affections of the inconsistent emperor, and the bands of policy were more firmly connected by those of love. But the haughty prejudice of Rome still refused the name of marriage to the profane mixture of a citizen and a barbarian, and has stigmatized the German princess with the opprobrious title of concubine of Gallienus. 3. We have already traced the emigration of the Goths from Scandinavia, or at the least from Prussia, to the mouth of the Borythianus, and have followed their victorious arms from the Borythianus to the Danube. Under the reigns of Valerian and Gallienus, the frontier of the last-mentioned river was perpetually infested by the inroads of Germans and Sarmatians. But it was defended by the Romans with more than usual firmness and success. The provinces that were the seat of war recruited the armies of Rome with an inexhaustible supply of hardy soldiers, and more than one of these Illyrian peasants attained the station and displayed the abilities of a general. Though flying parties of the barbarians, who incessantly hovered on the banks of the Danube, penetrated sometimes to the confines of Italy and Macedonia. Their progress was commonly checked, or their return intercepted, by the imperial lieutenants. But the great stream of the Gothic hostilities was diverted into a very different channel. The Goths, in their new settlement of the Ukraine, soon became masters of the northern coast of the Euxine. To the south of that inland sea, was situated the soft and wealthy provinces of Asia Minor, which possessed all that could attract, and nothing that could resist a barbarian conqueror. The banks of the Borysianus are only sixty miles distant from the narrow entrance of the peninsula of Crim Tartary, known to the ancients under the name of Chersonese Taurica. On that inhospitable shore, Euripides, embellishing with exquisite art the tales of antiquity, has placed the scene of one of his most affecting tragedies. The bloody sacrifices of Diana, the arrival of Orestes and Pallades, and the triumph of virtue and religion over savage fierceness, serve to represent an historical truth that the Tauri, the original inhabitants of the peninsula, were in some degree reclaimed from their brutal manners by a gradual intercourse with the Grecian colonies which settled along the maritime coast. The little kingdom of Bosphorus, whose capital was situated on the straits, through which the Meotis communicates itself to the Euxine, was composed of degenerate Greeks and half-civilized barbarians. It subsisted, as an independent state, from the time of the Philippinesian War, 
was, at last, swallowed up by the ambition of Mithridates, and, with the rest of his dominions, sunk under the weight of the Roman arms. From the reign of Augustus, the kings of Bosphorus were the humble, but not useless, allies of the empire. By presents, by arms, and by a slight fortification drawn across the isthmus, they effectually guarded against the roving plunderers of Sumatia, the axis of a country which, from its peculiar situation and convenient harbours, commanded the Euxine Sea and Asia Minor. As long as a sceptre was possessed by a lineal succession of kings, they acquitted themselves of their important charge with vigilance and success. Domestic factions and the fears, or private interest, of obscure observers who seized on the vacant throne, admitted the Goths into the heart of Bosphorus. With the acquisition of a superfluous waste of fertile soil, the conquerors obtained the command of a naval force, sufficient to transport their armies to the coast of Asia. The ships used in the navigation of the Euxine were of a very singular construction. They were slight, flat-bottomed barks framed of timber only, without the least mixture of iron, and occasionally covered with a shelving roof, on the appearance of a tempest. In these floating houses the Goths carelessly trusted themselves to the mercy of an unknown sea, under the conduct of sailors pressed into the service, and whose skill and fidelity were equally suspicious. But the hopes of plunder had banished every idea of danger, and a natural fearlessness of temper supplied in their minds the more rational confidence, which is the just result of knowledge and experience. Warriors of such a daring spirit must have often murmured against the cowardice of their guides, who required the strongest assurances of a settled calm before they would venture to embark, and would scarcely ever be tempted to lose sight of the land. Such, at least, is the practice of the modern Turks, and they are probably not inferior in the art of navigation to the ancient inhabitants of Borosphius. The fleet of Goths, leaving the coast of Circassa on the left hand, first appeared before Pytus, the utmost limits of the Roman provinces. A city provided with a convenient port, and fortified with a strong wall. Here they met with a resistance more obstinate than they had reason to expect from the feeble garrison of a distant fortress. They were repulsed, and their disappointment seemed to diminish the terror of the Gothic name. As long as Circassianus, an offer of superior rank and merit, defended that frontier, all their efforts were ineffectual. But as soon as he was removed by Valerian to a more honourable but less important station, they resumed the attack of Pytheus, and by the destruction of that city obliterated the memory of their former disgrace. Circling round the eastern extremity of the Euxine Sea, the navigation from Piteus to Trabzond is about three hundred miles. The course of the Goths carried them in sight of the country of Colchis, so famous by the expedition of the Argonauts, and they even attempted, though without success, to pillage a rich temple at the mouth of the river Phasis. Trebzond, celebrated in the retreat of the Ten Thousand as an ancient colony of Greeks, derived its wealth and splendour from the magnificence of the Emperor Hadrian, 
who had constructed an artificial port on a coast left destitute by nature of secure harbours. The city was large and populous. A double enclosure of walls seemed to defy the fury of the Goths, and the usual garrison had been strengthened by a reinforcement of ten thousand men. But there were not any advantages capable of supplying the absence of discipline and vigilance. The numerous garrison of Trebzond, dissolved in riot and luxury, disdained to guard their impregnable fortifications. The Goths soon discovered the supine negligence of the besieged, erected a lofty pile of fascines, ascended the walls in the silence of the night, and entered the defenceless city sword in hand. A general massacre of the people ensued, whilst the affrighted soldiers escaped through the opposite gates of the town. The most holy temples and the most splendid edifices were involved in a common destruction. The booty that fell into the hands of the Goths was immense. The wealth of the adjacent countries had been deposited in Tresbond as in a secure place of refuge. The number of captives was incredible, as the victorious barbarians ranged, without opposition, through the extensive province of Pontus. The rich spoils of Trebzond filled a great fleet of ships that had been found in the port. The robust youth of the sea-coast were chained to the oar, and the Goths, satisfied with the success of their first naval expedition, returned in triumph to their new establishment in the kingdom of Bosphorus. The second expedition of the Goths was undertaken with greater powers of men and ships. But they steered a different course, and disdaining the exhausted provinces of Pontus, followed the western coast of the Euxin, passed before the wide mouth of the Brucianus, the Niester, and the Danube, and increasing their fleet by the capture of a great number of fishing-barks, they approached the narrow outlet through which the Euxian Sea pours its waters into the Mediterranean, and divides the continents of Europe and Asia. The garrison of Chalcedon was encamped near the temple of Jupiter Urius, on a promontory that commanded the entrance of the strait, and so inconsiderable were the dreaded invasions of the barbarians, that this body of troops surpassed in number the Gothic army. But it was in numbers alone that they surpassed it. They deserted with precipitation their advantageous post, and abandoned the town of Chalcedon, most plentifully stored with arms and money, to the discretion of the conquerors. Whilst they hesitated whether they should prefer the sea, or land of Europe or Asia, for the scene of their hostilities, a perfidious fugitive pointed out Nicomedia, once the capital of the kings of Bithynia, as a rich and easy conquest. He guided the march, which was only sixty miles from the camp of Chalcedon, directed the resistless attack, and partook of the booty. For the Goths had learned sufficient policy to reward the traitor whom they detested. Nice, Prussia, Apamia, Caius, cities that had sometimes rivalled or intimidated the splendour of Nicomedia, were involved in the same calamity, which, in a few weeks, raged without control through the whole province of Bithynia. Three hundred years of peace, enjoyed by the soft inhabitants of Asia, had abolished the excise of arms, and removed the apprehension of danger. The ancient walls were suffered to moulder away, and all the revenue of the most opulent cities 
was resolved for the construction of baths, temples, and theatres. When the city of Cyzicus withstood the utmost effort of Mithridates, it was distinguished by wise laws, a naval power of two hundred galleys, and three arsenals, of arms, of military engines, and of corn. It was still the seat of wealth and luxury, but of its ancient strength nothing remained except the situation, in a little island off the Propontis, connected with the continent of Asia only by two bridges. From the recent sack of Prussia, the Goths advanced within eighteen miles of the city, which they had devoted to destruction. But the ruin of Cyzicus was delayed by a fortunate accident. The season was rainy, and the lake Apollonatis, the reservoir of all springs of Mount Olympus, rose to an uncommon height. The little river of Rhindacus, which issued from the lake, swelled into a broad and rapid stream, and stopped the progress of the Goths. Their retreat to the maritime city of Heraclea, where the fleet had probably been stationed, was attended by a long train of wagons laden with the spoils of Bithania, and was marked by the flames of Nice and Nicomedia, which they wantonly burnt. Some obscure hints are mentioned of a doubtful combat that secured their retreat. But even a complete victory would have been of little moment, as the approach of the autumn equinox summoned them to hasten their return. To navigate the Euxine before the month of May, or after that of September, is esteemed by the modern Turks the most unquestionable instance of rashness and folly. When we are informed that the third fleet, equipped by the Goths in the port of Bosphorus, consisted of five hundred sails of ships, our ready imagination instantly computes and multiplies the formidable armament. But, as we are assured by the judicious Starbo, that the piratical vessels used by the barbarians of Pontus and the lesser Scythia were not capable of containing more than twenty-five or thirty men, we may safely affirm that fifteen thousand warriors, at the most, embarked in this great expedition. Impatient of the limits of the Euxin, they steered their destructive course from the Chimerian to the Thracian Bosphorus. When they had almost gained the middle of the straits, they were suddenly driven back to the entrance of them, till a favourable wind, springing up the next day, carried them in a few hours into the placid sea, or rather lake, of the Propontius. Their landing on the little island of Cyzicus was attended with the ruin of that ancient and noble city. From thence, issuing again through the narrow passage of the Hellespont, they pursued the winding navigation amidst the numerous islands scattered over the archipelago, or the Aegean Sea. The assistance of captives and deserters must have been very necessary to pilot their vessels, and to direct their various incursions as well on the coast of Greece as on that of Asia. At length the Gothic fleet anchored in the port of Piraeus, five miles distant from Athens, which had attempted to make some preparations for a vigorous defence. Cleodamus, one of the engineers employed by the Emperor's orders to fortify the maritime cities against the Goths, had already begun to repair the ancient walls, fallen to decay since the time of Scylla. The efforts of his skill were ineffectual, 
and the barbarians became masters of the native seat of the muses and the arts. But while the conquerors abandoned themselves to the license of plunder and impertinence, their fleet, that lay with the slender guard in the harbour of Piraeus, was unexpectedly attacked by the brave Daxippus, who, flying with the engineer Cleodamus, from the sack of Athens, collected the hasty band of volunteers, peasants as well as soldiers, and in some measure avenged the calamities of his country. But this exploit, whatever lustre it might shed on the declining age of Athens, served rather to irritate than to subdue the undaunted spirit of the northern invaders. A general conflagration blazed out at the same time in every district of Greece. Thebes and Argos, Corinth and Sparta, which had formerly waged such memorable wars against each other, were now unable to bring an army into the field, or even to defend their ruined fortifications. The rage of war, both by land and by sea, spread from the eastern point of Sunim to the western coast of Epirus. The Goths had already advanced within sight of Italy, when the approach of such imminent danger awakened the indolent Gallienus from his dream of pleasure. The emperor appeared in arms, and his presence seemed to have checked the ardour, and to have divided the strength of the enemy. Nalobatus, a chief of the Heruli, accepted an honourable capitulation, entered with a large body of his countrymen into the service of Rome, and was invested with the ornaments of a consular dignity, which had never before been profaned by the hands of a barbarian. Great numbers of the Goths, disgusted with the perils and hardships of a tedious voyage, broke into Mercia, with a design of forcing their way over the Danube to their settlements in the Ukraine. The wild attempt would have proved inevitable destruction, if the discord of the Roman generals had not opened to the barbarians the means of an escape. The small remainder of this destroying host returned on board their vessels, and measuring back their way through the Hellespont and the Borysphus, ravaged in their passage the shores of Troy, whose fame, immortalized by Homer, will probably survive the memory of the Gothic conquests. As soon as they found themselves in safety within the basin of the Euxine, they landed at Ancalus in Thrace, near the foot of Mount Hamus, and after all their toils indulged themselves in the use of those pleasant and sultry hot baths. What remained of the voyage was a short and easy navigation. Such was the various fate of the third and greatest of their naval enterprises. It may seem difficult to conceive how the original body of fifteen thousand warriors could sustain the losses and diversions of so bold an adventure. But as their numbers were gradually wasted by the sword, by shipwrecks, and by the influence of a warm climate, they were perpetually renewed by troops of banditti and deserters, who flocked to the standard of plunder, and by a crowd of fugitive slaves often of German or Sumatian extraction, who eagerly seized the glorious opportunity of freedom and revenge. In these expeditions the Gothic nation claimed a superior share of honour and danger. But the tribes that fought under the Gothic banners, 
are sometimes distinguished and sometimes confounded in the imperfect histories of that age. And as the barbarian fleet seemed to issue from the mouth of the Tanis, the vague but familiar appellation of Scythians was frequently bestowed on the mixed multitude. End of chapter 10, part 3「10 Part 4 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter 10. Emperors Decius, Gallus, Aemilianus, Valerian, and Gallienus. Part 4. In the general calamities of mankind, the death of an individual, however exalted, the ruin of an edifice, however famous, are passed over with careless inattention. Yet we cannot forget that the temple of Diana at Ephesus, after having risen with increasing splendour from seven repeated misfortunes, was finally burnt by the Goths in their third naval invasion. The arts of Greece and the wealth of Asia had conspired to erect that sacred and magnificent structure. It was supported by a hundred and twenty-seven marble columns of the Ionic order. They were the gifts of devout monarchs, and each was sixty feet high. The altar was adorned with the masterly sculptures of Paraxteles, who had, perhaps, selected from the favourite legends of the place of the birth of the divine children of Latona, the concealment of Apollo after the slaughter of the Cyclops, and the clemency of Bacchus to the vanquished Amazons. Yet the length of the temple of Ephesus was only four hundred and twenty-five feet, about two-thirds of the measure of the church of St. Peter's at Rome. In other dimensions it was still more inferior to that sublime production of modern architecture. The spreading arms of a Christian cross require a much greater breadth than the oblong temples of the pagans and the boldest artists of antiquity would have been startled at the proposal of raising in the air a dome of the size and proportions of the Pantheon. The Temple of Diana was, however, admired as one of the wonders of the world. Successive empires, the Persian, the Macedonian, and the Roman, had revered its sanctity and enriched its splendour. But the rude savages of the Baltic were destitute of a taste for the elegant arts and they despised the ideal terrors of a foreign superstition. Another circumstance is related to these invasions, which might deserve our notice, were it not justly to be suspected, as the fanciful conceit of a recent sophist. We are told that in the sack of Athens, the Goths had collected all the libraries, and were on the point of setting fire to this funeral pile of Grecian learning. Had not one of their chiefs, of more refined policy than his brethren, dissuaded them from the design, by the profound observation, that as long as the Greeks were addicted to the study of books, they would never apply themselves to the exercise of arms. The sagacious counsellor, should the truth of the fact be admitted, reasoned like an ignorant barbarian. In the most polite and powerful nations, genius of every kind has displayed itself about the same period, and the age of science has generally been the age of military virtue and success. 4. 
the new sovereign of Persia, Artaxerxes and his son Sapor, had triumphed, as we have already seen, over the house of Arsaces. Of the many princes of that ancient race, Chrysoas, king of Armenia, had alone preserved both his life and his independence. He defended himself by that natural strength of his country, by the perpetual resort of fugitives and malcontents, by the alliance of the Romans, and above all by his own courage. Invincible in arms during a thirty years' war, he was at length assassinated by the emissaries of Sapor, king of Persia. The patriotic satraps of Armenia, who asserted the freedom and dignity of the crown, implored the protection of Rome in the favour of Triodatus, the lawful heir. But the son of Chosroes was an infant, the allies were at a distance, and the Persian monarch advanced towards the frontier at the head of an irresistible force. Young Triodatus, the future hope of his country, was saved by the fidelity of a servant, and Armenia continued above twenty-seven years a reluctant province of the great monarchy of Persia. Elated with this easy conquest, and presuming on the distress or the degeneracy of the Romans, Sapor obliged the strong garrisons of Carre and Nisbus to surrender, and spread devastation and terror on either side of the Euphrates. The loss of an important frontier, the ruin of a faithful and natural ally, and the rapid success of Sapor's ambition, affected Rome with a deep sense of the insult as well as of the danger. Valerian flattered himself that the vigilance of his lieutenants would sufficiently provide for the safety of the Rhine and of the Danube. But he resolved, notwithstanding his advanced age, to march in person to the defence of the Euphrates. During his progress through Asia Minor, the naval enterprises of the Goths were suspended, and the afflicted province enjoyed a transient and fallacious calm. He passed the Euphrates, encountered the Persian monarch near the walls of Edessa, was vanquished and taken prisoner by Sapor. The particulars of this great event are darkly and imperfectly represented. Yet, by the glimmering light which is afforded us, we may discover a long series of imprudence, of error, and of deserved misfortunes on the side of the Roman Emperor. He reposed an implicit confidence in Macrianus, his praetorian prefect. That worthless minister rendered his master formidably only to the oppressed subjects, and contemptible to the enemies of Rome. By his weak or wicked counsels, the imperial army was betrayed into a situation where valour and military skill were equally unavailing. The vigorous attempt of the Romans to cut their way through the Persian host was repulsed with great slaughter, and Sapor, who encompassed the camp with superior numbers, patiently waited till the increasing rage of famine and pestilence had ensured his victory. The licentious murmurs of the legions soon accused Valerian as the cause of their calamities. Their sedacious clamours demanded an instant capitulation. An immense sum of gold was offered to purchase the permission of a disgraceful retreat. But the Persian, conscious of his superiority, refused the money with disdain and detaining the deputies, advanced in order of battle to the foot of the Roman rampart, and insisted on a personal conference with the emperor. 
Valerian was reduced to the necessity of entrusting his life and dignity to the faith of an enemy. The interview ended as it was natural to expect. The emperor was made a prisoner, and his astonished troops laid down their arms. In such a moment of triumph, the pride and policy of Sapor promoted him to fill the vacant throne with a successor entirely dependent on his pleasure. Chirides, an obscure fugitive of Antioch, stained with every vice, was chosen to dishonour the Roman purple. And the will of the Persian victor could not fail of being ratified by the acclamations, however reluctant, of the captive army. The imperial slave was eager to secure the favour of his master by an act of treason to his native country. He conducted Sapor over the Euphrates, and, by the way of Calchas, to the metropolis of the east. So rapid were the motions of the Persian cavalry, that, if we may credit a very judicious historian, the city of Antioch was surprised when the idle multitude was fondly gazing on the amusements of the theatre. The splendid buildings of Antioch, private as well as public, were either pillaged or destroyed, and the numerous inhabitants were put to the sword or led away into captivity. The tide of devastation was stopped for a moment by the resolution of the high priest of Emesa. Arrayed in his sacerdotal robes, he appeared at the head of a great body of fanatic peasants armed only with slings, and defended his god and his property from the sacrilegious hands of the followers of Zoroaster. But the ruin of Tarsus and of many other cities furnishes a melancholy proof that, except in this singular instance, the conquest of Syria and Cilicia scarcely interrupted the progress of the Persian arms. The advantages of the narrow passes of Mount Taurus were abandoned, in which an invader, whose principal force consisted in his cavalry, would have been engaged in a very unequal combat, and Sapor was permitted to form the siege of Caesarea, the capital of Cappadocia a city, though of the second rank, which was supposed to contain four hundred thousand inhabitants. Demosthenes commanded in the place, not so much by the commission of the emperor, as in the voluntary defence of his country. For a long time he deferred its fate, and when at last Caesarea was betrayed by the perfidy of a physician, he cut his way through the Persians, who had been ordered to exert their utmost diligence to take him alive. This heroic chief escaped the power of a foe who might either have honoured or punished his obstinate valour. But many thousands of his fellow-citizens were involved in a general massacre, and Sapor is accused of treating his prisoners with wanton and unrelenting cruelty. Much should undoubtedly be allowed for national animosity, much for humbled pride and impotent revenge. Yet, upon the whole, it is certain that the same prince, who, in Armenia, had displayed the mild aspect of a legislator, showed himself to the Romans under the stern features of a conqueror. He despaired of making any permanent establishment in the empire, and sought only to leave behind him a wasted desert, whilst he transported into Persia the people and the treasure of the provinces. At the time when the East trembled at the name of Sapor, he received a present not unworthy of the greatest kings a long train of camels laden with the most rare and valuable merchandises. The rich offering was accompanied with an epistle, respectful but not servile, from Odenathus, 
one of the noblest and most opulent senators of Palmyra. "'Who is this Odenathus?' said the haughty victor, and he commanded that the presents should be cast into the Euphrates. That he thus insolently presumes to write to his lord. If he entertains a hope of mitigating his punishment, let him fall prostrate before the foot of our throne, with his hands bound behind his back. Should he hesitate, swift destruction shall be poured on his head, on his whole race, and on his country. The desperate extremity to which the Palmyrenian was reduced, called into action all the latent powers of his soul. He met Sapor, but he met him in arms. Infusing his own spirit into the little army collected from the villages of Syria and the tents of the desert, he hovered round the Persian host, harassed their retreat, carried off part of the treasure, and, what was dearer than any treasure, several of the women of the great king, who was, at last, obliged to repass Euphrates with some marks of haste and confusion. By this exploit, Odenathus laid the foundations of his future fame and fortunes. The majesty of Rome, oppressed by a Persian, was protected by a Syrian or Arab of Palmyra. The voice of history, which is often little more than the organ of hatred or flattery, reproaches Sapor with a proud abuse of the rights of a conquest. We are told that Valerian, in chains, but invested with the imperial purple, was exposed to the multitude, a constant spectacle of fallen greatness, and that, whenever the Persian monarch mounted on horseback, he placed his foot on the neck of a Roman emperor, notwithstanding all the remonstrances of his allies, who repeatedly advised him to remember the vicissitudes of fortune, to dread the returning power of Rome, and to make his illustrious captive the pledge of peace, not the object of insult. So Paul still remained inflexible. When Valerian sunk under the weight of shame and grief, his skin, stuffed with straw, was formed into the likeness of a human figure, was preserved for ages in the most celebrated temple of Persia. A more real monument of triumph than the fancied trophies of brass and marble so often erected by Roman vanity. The tale is moral and pathetic, but the truth of it may very fairly be called in question. The letters still extant from the princes of the East to Sapor are manifest forgeries. Nor is it natural to suppose that a jealous monarch should, even in the person of a rival, thus publicly degrade the majesty of kings. Whatever treatment the unfortunate Valerian might experience in Persia, it is at least certain that the only emperor of Rome who had ever fallen into the hands of the enemy, languished away his life in hopeless captivity. The emperor Gallienus, who had long supported with impatience the censorial severity of his father and colleague, received the intelligence of his misfortunes with secret pleasure and avowed indifference. "'I knew that my father was immortal,' said he, "'and since he has acted as it becomes a brave man, I am satisfied.' Whilst Rome lamented the fate of her sovereign, the savage coldness of his son was extolled by the servile courtiers as the perfect firmness of a hero and a stoic. It is difficult to paint the light, the various, the inconsistent character of Gallienus, which he displayed without constraint, as soon as he became sole possessor of the empire. In every art that he attempted, his lively genius enabled him to succeed. And as his genius was destitute of judgment, 
he attempted every art, except the important ones of war and government. He was a master of several curious but useless sciences, a ready orator, an elegant poet, a skilful gardener, an excellent cook, and most contemptible prince. When the great emergencies of the state required his presence and attention, he was engaged in conversation with the philosopher, Plontius, wasting his time in trifling or licentious pleasures, preparing his initiation to the Grecian mysteries, or soliciting a place in the Archipagus of Athens. His profuse magnificence insulted the general poverty. The solemn ridicule of his triumph impressed a deeper sense of the public disgrace. The repeated intelligence of invasions, defeats, and rebellions he received with a careless smile, and, singling out with effective contempt, some particular production of the lost province, he carelessly asked whether Rome must be ruined, unless it was supplied with linen from Egypt, and arras cloth from Gaul. There were, however, a few short moments in the life of Gallienus, when, exasperated by some recent injury, he suddenly appeared the intrepid soldier and the cruel tyrant, till, satiated with blood, or fatigued by resistance, he insensibly sunk into the natural mildness and indolence of his character. At the time when the reins of government were held with so loose a hand, it is not surprising that a crowd of usurpers should start up in every province of the empire against the son of Valerian. It was probably some ingenious fancy of comparing the thirty tyrants of Rome with the thirty tyrants of Athens, that induced the writers of the Augustan history to select that celebrated number, which has been gradually received into a popular appellation. But in every light the parallel is idle and effective. What resemblance can we discover between a council of thirty persons, the united oppressors of a single city, and an uncertain list of independent rivals, who rose and fell in irregular successions through the extent of a vast empire? Nor can the number of thirty be completed, unless we include in the account the women and children who are honoured with the imperial title. The reign of Gallienus, distracted as it was, produced only nineteen pretenders to the throne. Cyrides, Macrianus, Ballista, Odenathus, and Zenobi in the east. In Gaul and the western provinces, Posthumus, Lolanius, Victorianus, and his mother Victoria, Marius, and Tetricus, in Illyricum, and the confines of the Danube, in Genus, Reglianus, and Aurelius, in Pontus, Saturninus, in Assyria, Trebellianus, Piso in Thessaly, Valens in Achaia, Aemilianus in Egypt, and Celsus in Africa, to illustrate the obscure monuments of the life and death of each individual would prove a laborious task, alike barren of instruction and of amusement. We may content ourselves with investigating some general characters, that most strongly mark the condition of the times, and the manners of the men, their pretensions, their motives, their fate, and their destructive consequences of their reception. It is sufficiently known that the odious appellation of tyrant was often employed by the ancients, to express the illegal seizure of supreme power, without any reference to the abuse of it. 
several of the pretenders who raised the standard of rebellion against the emperor gallienus were shining models of virtue and almost all possessed a considerable share of vigour and ability their merit had recommended them to the favour of valerian and gradually promoted them to the most important commands of the empire the generals who assumed the title of augustus were either respected by their troops for their able conduct and severe discipline or admired for valour and success in war or beloved for frankness and generosity the field of victory was often the scene of their election and even the armourer marius the most contemptible of all the candidates for the purple was distinguished however by intrepid courage matchless strength and blunt honesty his mean and recent trade cast indeed an air of ridicule on his elevation but his birth could not be more obscure than was that of the greater part of his rivals who were born of peasants and enlisted in the army as private soldiers in times of confusion every active genius finds the place assigned him by nature in a general state of war military merit is the road to glory and to greatness of the nineteen tyrants tetricus only was a senator piso alone was a noble the blood of numa through twenty-eight successive generations ran in the veins of caliphanus piso who by female alliances claimed a right of exhibiting in his house the images of crassus and of the great pompey his ancestors had been repeatedly dignified with all the honours which the commonwealth could bestow and of all the ancient families of rome the californian alone had survived the tyranny of the caesars the personal qualities of piso added new lustre to his race the usurper valens by whose order he was killed confessed with deep remorse that even an enemy ought to have respected the sanctity of piso and although he died in arms against gallienus the senate with the emperor's generous permission decreed the triumphal ornaments to the memory of so virtuous a rebel the lieutenants of valerian were grateful to the father whom they esteemed they disdained to serve the luxurious indolence of his unworthy son the throne of the roman world was unsupported by any principle of loyalty and treason against such a prince might easily be considered as patriotism to the state yet if we examine with candour the conduct of these usurpers it will appear that they were much often driven into rebellion by their fears than urged to it by ambition they dreaded the cruel suspicions of gallienus they equally dreaded the capricious violence of their troops if the dangerous favour of the army had imprudently declared them deserving of the purple they were marked for sure destruction and even prudence would counsel them to secure a short enjoyment of empire and rather to try the fortune of war than to expect the hand of an executioner when the clamour of the soldiers invested the reluctant victims with the ensigns of sovereign authority they sometimes mourned in secret their approaching fate you have lost said saturnus on the day of his elevation you have lost a useful commander and you have made a very wretched emperor the apprehensions of saturninus were justified by the repeated experience of revolutions of the nineteen tyrants who started up under the reign of gallienus there was not one who enjoyed a life of peace or a natural death 
as soon as they were invested with the bloody purple, they inspired their ardents with the same fears and ambition which had occasioned their own revolt. Encompassed with domestic conspiracy, military sedation, and civil war, they trembled on the edge of precipices, in which, after a longer or shorter term of anxiety, they were inevitably lost. These precarious monarchs received, however, such honours as the flattery of their respective armies and provinces could bestow. But their claim, founded on rebellion, could never obtain the sanction of law or history. Italy, Rome, and the Senate, constantly adhered to the cause of Gallienus, and he alone was considered as the sovereign of the empire. That prince condescended, indeed, to acknowledge the victorious arms of Edenathus, who deserved the honourable distinction by the respectful conduct which he always maintained towards the son of Valerian. With the general applause of the Romans, and the consent of Gallienus, the Senate conferred the title of Augustus on the brave Palmyrenian, and seemed to entrust him with the government of the East, which he already possessed in so independent a manner, that, like a private succession, he bequeathed it to his illustrious widow Zenobia. The rapid and perpetual transitions from the cottage to the throne, and from the throne to the grave, might have amused an indifferent philosopher, were it possible for a philosopher to remain indifferent, amidst the general calamities of humankind. The election of these precarious emperors, their power and their death, were equally destructive to their subjects and adherents. The price of their fatal elevation was instantly discharged to the troops by an immense donative, drawn from the bowels of the exhausted people. However virtuous was their character, however pure their intentions, they found themselves reduced to the hard necessity of supporting their absorption by frequent acts of rapine and cruelty. When they fell, they involved armies and provinces in their fall. There is still exact a most savage mandate from Gallienus to one of his ministers. After the suppression of Ingenus, who had assumed the purple in Illocrum, "'It is not enough,' says the soft but inhuman prince, "'that you exterminate such as have appeared in arms. "'The chance of battle might have served me as effectually. "'The male sex of every age must be extirpated, "'provided that, in the execution of the children and old men, "'you can contrive means to save our reputation. "'Let every one die who has dropped an expression, "'who has entertained a thought against me, "'against me, the son of Valerian.' the father and brother of so many princes. Remember that Ingenus was made emperor. Tear, kill, hew in pieces. I write you with my own hand, and would inspire you with my own feelings. Whilst the public forces of the state were dissipated in private quarrels, the defenceless provinces lay exposed to every invader. The bravest usurpers were compelled by the perplexity of their situation, to conclude ignominious treaties with the common enemy, to purchase with oppressive tributes the neutrality or services of the barbarians, and to introduce hostile and independent nations into the heart of the Roman monarchy. Such were the barbarians, and such the tyrants, who, under the reigns of Valerian and Gallienus, dismembered the provinces, 
and reduced the empire to the lowest pitch of disgrace and ruin, from whence it seemed impossible that it should ever emerge. As far as the barrenness of materials would permit, we have attempted to trace, with order and perspicuity, the general events of that calamitous period. There still remain some particular facts. 1. The disorders of Sicily. 2. The tumults of Alexandria. And 3. The rebellion of the Isaurians, which may serve to reflect a strong light on the horrid picture. 1. Whenever numerous troops of banditti, multiplied by success and impunity, publicly defy, instead of eluding the justice of their country, we may safely infer that the excessive weakness of the government is felt and abused by the lowest ranks of the community. The situation of Sicily preserved it from the barbarians, nor could the disarmed province have supported a usurper. The sufferings of that once flourishing and still fertile island were inflicted by baser hands. A licentious crowd of slaves and peasants reigned for a while over the plundered country, and renewed the memory of the servile wars of more ancient times. Devastations, of which the husbandman was either the victim or the accomplice, must have ruined the agriculture of Sicily. And as the principal estates were the property of the opulent senators of Rome, who often enclosed within a farm the territory of an old republic, it is not improbable that this private injury might affect the capital more deeply than all the conquests of the Goths or the Persians. 2. The foundation of Alexandria was a noble design, at once conceived and executed by the son of Philip. The beautiful and regular form of that great city, second only to Rome itself, comprehended a circumference of fifteen miles. It was peopled by three hundred thousand free inhabitants, besides at least an equal number of slaves. The lucrative trade of Arabia and India flowed through the port of Alexandria, to the capital and provinces of the empire. Idleness was unknown. Some were employed in blowing of glass, others in weaving of linen, others again manufacturing the papyrus. Either sex and every age was engaged in the pursuits of industry. Nor did even the blind or the lame want occupation suited to their condition. But the people of Alexandria, a various mixture of nations, united the vanity and inconsistency of the Greeks with the superstition and obstinacy of the Egyptians. The most trifling occasion, a transient scarcity of flesh or lentils, the neglect of an accustomed salutation, a mistake of precedency in the public baths, or even a religious dispute, were at any time sufficient to kindle a sedation among the vast multitude, whose resentments were furious and implacable. After the capture of Valerian, and the insolence of his son had relaxed the authority of the laws, the Alexandrians abandoned themselves to the ungoverned rage of their passions, and their unhappy country was the theatre of a civil war, which continued, with a few short and suspicious truces, above twelve years. All intercourse was cut off between the several quarters of the afflicted city. Every street was polluted with blood, every building of strength converted into a citadel. Nor did the tumult subside, till a considerable part of Alexandria 
was irretrievably ruined. The spacious and magnificent district of Bruchion, with its palaces and museum, the residence of the kings and philosophers of Egypt, is described above a century afterwards, as already reduced to its present state of dreary solitude. 3. The obscure rebellion of Trebellius, who assumed the purple in Isauria, a petty province of Asia Minor, was attended with strange and memorable consequences. The pageant of royalty was soon destroyed by an officer of Gallienus, but his followers, despairing of mercy, resolved to shake off their allegiance, not only to the emperor, but to the empire, and suddenly returned to the savage manners from which they had never perfectly been reclaimed. Their craggy rocks, a branch of the wide extended Taurus, protected their inaccessible retreat. The tillage of some fertile valleys supplied them with necessaries, and a habit of raping with the luxuries of life. In the heart of the Roman monarchy, the Assyrians long contained a nation of wild barbarians. Succeeding princes, unable to reduce them to obedience, either by arms or policy, were compelled to acknowledge their weakness, by surrounding the hostile and independent spot with a strong chain of fortifications, which often proved insufficient to restrain the incursions of these domestic foes. The Assyrians, gradually extending their territory to the sea-coast, subdued the western and mountainous part of Cilicia, formerly the nest of those daring pirates, against whom the Republic had once been obliged to exert its utmost force, under the conduct of the great Pompey. Our habits of thinking so fondly connect the order of the universe with the fate of man, that this gloomy period of history has been decorated with inundations, earthquakes, uncommon meteors, preternatural darkness, and a crowd of prodigies, fictitious or exaggerated. But a long and general famine was a calamity of a more serious kind. It was the inevitable consequence of raping and oppression, which extirpated the produce of the peasant, and the hope of future harvests. Famine is almost always followed by epidemical disease, the effect of scanty and unwholesome food. Other causes must, however, have contributed to the furious plague, which, from the year 250 to the year 265, raged without interruption in every province every city, and almost every family of the Roman Empire. During some time, five thousand persons died daily in Rome, and many towns that had escaped the hands of the barbarians were entirely depopulated. We have the knowledge of a very curious circumstance, of some use perhaps in the melancholy calculation of human calamities. An exact register was kept at Alexandria, of all the citizens entitled to receive the distribution of corn. It was found that the ancient number of those comprised between the ages of forty and seventy had been equal to the whole sum of claimants from fourteen to fourscore years of age, who remained alive after the reign of Gallienus. Applying this authentic fact to the most correct tables of mortality, it evidently proves that above half the people of Alexandria had perished, and could we venture to extend the analogy to the other provinces, we might suspect 
that war, pestilence, and famine had consumed in a few years the moiety of the human species. End of chapter 10, part 4「Chapter 11, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Chapter 11 Reign of Claudius, Defeat of the Goths Part 1 Reign of Claudius, Defeat of the Goths, Victories, Triumph and death of Aurelian. Under the deplorable reigns of Valerian and Gallienus, the empire was oppressed and almost destroyed by the soldiers, the tyrants, and the barbarians. It was saved by a series of great princes who derived their obscure origin from the martial provinces of Illyricum. Within a period of about thirty years, Claudius, Aurelian, Probus, Diocletian, and his colleagues triumphed over the foreign and domestic enemies of the state, re-established with a military discipline the strength of the frontiers and deserved the glorious title of Restorers of the Roman World. The removal of an effeminate tyrant made way for a succession of heroes. The indignation of the people imputed all their calamities to Gallienus, and the far greater part were indeed the consequence of his dissolute manners and careless administration. He was even destitute of a sense of honour, which so frequently supplies the absence of public virtue, and as long as he was permitted to enjoy the possession of Italy, a victory of the barbarians, the loss of a province, or the rebellion of a general, seldom distributed the tranquil course of his pleasures. At length, a considerable army, stationed on the upper Danube, invested with the imperial purple their leader Aureolus, who, disdaining a confined and barren reign over the mountains of Rhaetia, passed the Alps, occupied Milan, threatened Rome, and challenged Gallienus to dispute in the field the sovereignty of Italy. The emperor, provoked by the insult and alarmed by the instant danger, suddenly exerted that latent vigour which sometimes broke through the indolence of his temper. Forcing himself from the luxury of the palace, he appeared in arms at the head of his legions and advanced beyond the Po to encounter his competitor. The corrupted name of Pontirolo still preserves the memory of a bridge over the Adda, which, during the action, must have proved an object of the utmost importance to both armies. The Rhaetian usurper, after receiving a total defeat and a dangerous wound, retired into Milan. The siege of that great city was immediately formed. The walls were battered with every engine in use among the ancients, and Aureolus, doubtful of his internal strength and hopeless of foreign succours, already anticipated the fatal consequences of unsuccessful rebellion. His last resource was an attempt to seduce the loyalty of the besiegers. He scattered libels through the camp, inviting the troops to desert an unworthy master, who sacrificed the public happiness to his luxury, and the lives of his most valuable subjects to the slightest suspicions. 
the arts of Aureolus diffused fears and discontent among the principal officers of his rival. A conspiracy was formed by Heraclianus, the Praetorian prefect, by Marcion, a general of rank and reputation, and by Secrops, who commanded a numerous body of the Dalmatian guards. The death of Gallienus was resolved, and notwithstanding their desire of first terminating the siege of Milan, the extreme danger which accompanied every moment's delay obliged them to hasten the execution of their daring purpose. At a late hour of the night, but while the emperor still protracted the pleasures of the table, an alarm was suddenly given that Aureolus, at the head of all his forces, had made a desperate sally from the town. Gallienus, who was never deficient in personal bravery, started from his silken couch, and without allowing himself time either to put on his armour or to assemble his guards, he mounted on horseback and rode full speed towards the supposed place of the attack. Encompassed by his declared or concealed enemies, he soon, amidst the nocturnal tumult, received a mortal dart from an uncertain hand. Before he expired, a patriotic sentiment using in the mind of Gallienus induced him to name a deserving successor, and it was his last request that the imperial ornaments should be delivered to Claudius, who then commanded a detached army in the neighbourhood of Pavia. The report at least was diligently propagated, and the order cheerfully obeyed by the conspirators, who had already agreed to place Claudius on the throne. On the first news of the emperor's death, the troops expressed some suspicion and resentment, till the one was removed and the other assuaged by a donator of twenty pieces of gold to each soldier. They then ratified the election and acknowledged the merit of their new sovereign. The obscurity which covered the origin of Claudius, though it was afterwards embellished by some flattering fictions, sufficiently betrays the meanness of his birth. We can only discover that he was a native of one of the provinces bordering on the Danube, that his youth was spent in arms, and that his modest valour attracted the favour and confidence of Decius. The senate and people already considered him an excellent officer, equal to the most important trusts, and censured the inattention of Valerian, who suffered him to remain in the subordinate section of a tribune. But it was not long before that emperor distinguished the merit of Claudius by declaring him general and chief of the Illyrian frontier, with the command of all the troops in Thrace, Macia, Dacia, Pannonia, and Dalmatia, the appointments of the prefect of Egypt, the establishments of the proconsul of Africa, and the sure prospect of the consulship. By his victories over the Goths, he deserved from the Senate the honour of a statue, and excited the jealous apprehensions of Gallienus. It was impossible that a soldier could esteem so dissolute a sovereign, nor is it easy to conceal a just contempt. Some unguarded expressions which dropped from Claudius were officially transmitted to the royal ear. The emperor's answer to an officer of confidence describes in very lively colours his own character and that of the times. There is not anything capable of giving me more serious concern than the intelligence contained in your last dispatch, that some malicious suggestions have indisposed towards us the mind of our friend and parent Claudius, 
as you regard your allegiance, use every means to appease his resentment, but conduct your negotiation with secrecy. Let it not reach the knowledge of Dacian troops. They are already provoked, and it might inflame their fury. I myself have sent him some presents. Be it your care that he accept them with pleasure. Above all, let him not suspect that I am made acquainted with his imprudence. The fear of my anger might urge him to desperate counsels. The presence which accompanied this humble epistle, in which the monarch solicited a reconciliation with his discontented subject, consisted of a considerable sum of money, a splendid wardrobe, and a valuable service of silver and gold plate. By such arts, Gallienus softened the indignation and dispelled the fears of his Illyrian general, and during the remainder of that reign the formidable sword of Claudius was always drawn in the cause of a master whom he despised. At last, indeed, he received from the conspirators the bloody purple of Gallienus, but he had been absent from their camp and councils, and however he might applaud the deed, we may candidly presume that he was innocent of the knowledge of it. When Claudius ascended the throne, he was about fifty-four years of age. The siege of Milan was still continued, and Aureolus soon discovered that the success of his artifices had only raised up a more determined adversary. He attempted to negotiate with Claudius a treaty of alliance and partition. Tell him, replied the intrepid emperor, that such proposals should have been made to Gallienus. He, perhaps, might have listened to them with patience, and accepted a colleague as despicable as himself. This turned refusal, and a last unsuccessful effort, obliged Aureolus to lead the city and himself to the discretion of the conqueror. The judgment of the army pronounced him worthy of death, and Claudius, after a feeble resistance, consented to the execution of the sentence. Nor was the zeal of the senate less ardent in the cause of their new sovereign. They ratified, perhaps with a sincere transport of zeal, the election of Claudius, and, as his predecessor had shown himself the personal enemy of their order, they exercised, under the name of justice, a severe revenge against his friends and family. The senate was permitted to discharge the ungrateful office of punishment, and the emperor reserved for himself the pleasure and merit of obtaining by his intercession a general act of indemnity. Such ostentatious clemency discovers less of the real character of Claudius than a trifling circumstance in which he seems to have consulted only the dictates of his heart. The frequent rebellions of the provinces had involved almost every person in the guilt of treason, almost every estate in the case of confiscation and Gallienus often displayed his liberality by distributing among his officers the property of his subjects. On the accession of Claudius, an old woman threw herself at his feet and complained that a general of the late emperor had obtained an arbitrary grant of her patrimony. This general was Claudius himself, who had not entirely escaped the contagion of the times. The emperor blushed at the reproach, but deserved the confidence which she had reposed in his equity. The confession of his fault was accompanied with immediate and ample restitution. In the arduous task which Claudius had undertaken of restoring the empire to its ancient splendor, it was first necessary to revive among his troops a sense of order and obedience.
with the authority of a veteran commander he represented to them that the relaxation of discipline had introduced a long train of disorders the effect of which were at length experienced by the soldiers themselves that a people ruined by oppression and indolent from despair could no longer supply a numerous army with a means of luxury or even subsistence that the danger of each individual had increased with the despotism of the military order since princes who tremble on the throne will guard their safety by the instant sacrifice of every obnoxious subject the emperor expiated on the mischiefs of a lawless caprice which the soldiers could only gratify at the expense of their own blood as their seditious elections had so frequently been followed by civil wars which consumed the flower of the legions either in the field of battle or in the cruel abuse of victory he painted in the most lively colours the exhausted state of the treasury the desolation of the provinces the disgrace of the roman name and the insolent triumph of rapacious barbarians it was against those barbarians he declared that he intended to point the first effort of their arms tetricus might reign for a while over the west and even zenobia might preserve the dominion of the east these usurpers were his personal adversaries nor could he think of indulging any private resentment till he had saved an empire whose impending ruin would unless it was timely prevented crush both the army and the people the various nations of germany and sarmatia who fought under the gothic standard had already collected an armament more formidable than any which had yet issued from the euxine on the banks of the Niester, one of the great rivers that discharged themselves into that sea they constructed a fleet of two thousand or even six thousand vessels numbers which however incredible they may seem would have been insufficient to transport their pretended army of three hundred and twenty thousand barbarians whatever might be the real strength of the goths the vigour and success of the expedition were not adequate to the greatness of the preparations in their passage through the bosphorus the unskilful pilots were overpowered by the violence of the current and while the multitude of their ships were crowded in a narrow channel many were dashed against each other or against the shore the barbarians made several descents on the coasts both of europe and asia but the open country was already plundered and they were repulsed with shame and loss from the fortified cities which they assaulted a spirit of discouragement and division arose in the fleet and some of their chiefs sailed away towards the islands of crete and cyprus but the main body pursuing a more steady course anchored at length near the foot of mount athos and assaulted the city of thessalonica the wealthy capital of all the macedonian provinces their attacks in which they displayed a fierce but artless bravery were soon interrupted by the rapid approach of claudius hastening to a scene of action that deserved the presence of a warlike prince at the head of the remaining powers of the empire impatient for battle the goths immediately broke up their camp relinquished the siege of thessalonica left their navy at the foot of mount athos traversed to the hills of macedonia and pressed forward to engage the last defence of italy we still possess an original letter addressed by claudius to the senate and people on this memorable occasion conscript fathers says the emperor 
know that 320,000 Goths have invaded the Roman territory. If I vanquish them, your gratitude will reward my services. Should I fall, remember that I am the successor of Gallienus. The whole Republic is fatigued and exhausted. We shall fight after Valerian, after Ingenuus, Regilianus, Lollianus, Posthumus, Celsus, and a thousand others whom a just contempt for Gallienus provoked into rebellion. We are in the want of darts, of spears, and of shields. The strength of the empire, Gaul, and Spain are usurped by Tetricus, and we blush to acknowledge that the archers of the east serve under the banners of Zenobia. Whatever we shall perform will be sufficiently great. The melancholy firmness of this epistle announces a hero careless to his fate, conscious of his danger, and still deriving a well-grounded hope from the resources of his own mind. The events surpassed his own expectations and those of the world. By the most signal victories he delivered the empire from this host of barbarians, and was distinguished by posterity under the glorious appellation of the Gothic Claudius. The imperfect historians of an irregular war do not enable us to describe the order and circumstances of his exploits. But, if we could be indulged in the illusion, we might distribute into three acts this memorable tragedy. 1. The decisive battle was fought near Nisus, a city of Dardania. The legions at first gave away, oppressed by numbers and dismayed by misfortunes. Their ruin was inevitable, had not the abilities of their emperor prepared a seasonable relief. A large detachment, rising out of the secret and difficult passes of the mountains, which, by his order, they had occupied, suddenly assailed the rear of the victorious Goths. The favorable instant was improved by the activity of Claudius. He revived the courage of his troops, restored their ranks, and pressed the barbarians on every side. 50,000 men are reported to have been slain in the Battle of Nisus. Several large bodies of barbarians, covering their retreat with the movable fortifications of wagons, retired, or rather escaped, from the field of slaughter. 2. We may presume that some insurmountable difficulty, the fatigue perhaps, or the disobedience of the conquerors, prevented Claudius from completing in one day the destruction of the Goths. The war was diffused over the province of Maesia, Thrace, and Macedonia, and its operations drawn out into a variety of marches, surprises, and tumultuary engagements, as well by sea as by land. When the Romans suffered any loss, it was commonly occasioned by their own cowardice or rashness. But the superior talents of the emperor, his perfect knowledge of the country, and his judicious choice of measures as well as officers assured on most occasions the success of his arms. The immense booty, the fruit of so many victories, consisted for the greater part of cattle and slaves. A select body of the Gothic youth was received among the imperial troops. The remainder was sold into servitude, and so considerable was the number of female captives that every soldier obtained to his share two or three women a circumstance from which we may conclude that the invaders entertained some designs of settlement as well as of plunder, since even in a naval expedition they were accompanied by their families. 3. The loss of their fleet, 
which was either taken or sunk, had intercepted the retreat of the Goths. A vast circle of Roman posts, distributed with skill, supported with firmness, and gradually closing towards a common centre, forced the barbarians into the most inaccessible parts of Mount Hemus, where they found a safe refuge, but a very scanty subsistence. During the course of a rigorous winter, in which they were besieged by the emperor's troops, famine and pestilence, desertion and the sword, continually diminished the imprisoned multitude. On the return of spring, nothing appeared in arms except a hardy and desperate band, the remnant of that mighty host which had embarked at the mouth of the Nister. The pestilence which swept away such numbers of the barbarians at length proved fatal to their conqueror. After a short but glorious reign of two years, Claudius expired at Sirmium, amidst the tears and acclamations of his subjects. In his last illness, he convened the principal officers of the state and army, and in their presence recommended Aurelian, one of his generals, as the most deserving of the throne and the best qualified to execute the great design which he himself had been permitted only to undertake. The virtues of Claudius, his valour, affability, justice, and temperance, his love of fame and of his country, place him in that short list of emperors who added lustre to the Roman purple. Those virtues, however, were celebrated with peculiar zeal and complacency by the courtly writers of the age of Constantine, who was the great-grandson of Crispus, the elder brother of Claudius. The voice of flattery was soon taught to repeat that gods, who so hastily had snatched Claudius from the earth, rewarded his merit and piety by the perpetual establishment of the empire in his family. Notwithstanding these oracles, the greatness of the Flavian family, a name which it had pleased them to assume, was deferred above twenty years, and the elevation of Claudius occasioned the immediate ruin of his brother, Quintilius, who possessed not sufficient moderation or courage to descend into the private station to which the patriotism of the late emperor had condemned him. Without delay or reflection, he assumed the purple at Aquilia, where he commanded a considerable force and though his reign lasted only seventeen days, he had time to obtain the sanction of the senate and to experience a mutiny of the troops. As soon as he was informed that the great army of the Danube had invested the well-known valour of Aurelian with imperial power, he sunk under the fame and merit of his rival, and ordering his veins to be opened, prudently withdrew himself from the unequal contest. The general design of this work will not permit us minutely to relate the actions of every emperor after he ascended the throne, much less to deduce the various fortunes of his private life. We shall only observe that the father of Aurelian was a peasant of the territory of Sirmium, who occupied a small farm, the property of Aurelius, a rich senator. His warlike son, enlisted in the troops as a common soldier, successively rose to the rank of a centurion, a tribune, the prefect of a legion, the inspector of the camp, the general, or, as it was then called, the duke of a frontier, and, at length during the Gothic war, exercised the important office of commander-in-chief of the cavalry. In every station he distinguished himself by matchless vigour, rigid discipline, and successful conduct. 
he was invested with a consulship by the emperor valerian who styles him in the pompous language of that age the deliverer of illyricum the restorer of gaul and the rival of the scipios at the recommendation of valerian a senator of the highest rank and merit ulpius crinitus whose blood was derived from the same source as that of trajan adopted the pannonian peasant gave him his daughter in marriage and relieved with his ample fortune the honourable poverty which aurelian had preserved inviolate the reign of aurelian lasted only four years and about nine months but every instant of that short period was filled by some memorable achievement he put an end to the gothic war chastised the germans who invaded italy recovered gaul spain and britain out of the hands of tetricus and destroyed the proud monarchy which zenobia had erected in the east on the ruins of the afflicted empire it was the rigid attention of aurelian even to the minutest articles of discipline which bestowed such uninterrupted success on his arms his military regulations are contained in a very concise epistle to one of his inferior officers who is commanded to enforce them as he wishes to become a tribune or he is desirous to live gaming drinking and the arts of divination were severely prohibited aurelian expected that his soldiers should be modest frugal and laborious that their armor should be constantly kept bright their weapons sharp their clothing and horses ready for immediate service that they should live in their quarters with chastity and sobriety without damaging the cornfields without stealing even a sheep a fowl or a bunch of grapes without exacting from their landlords either salt or oil or wood the public allowance continues the emperor is sufficient for their support their wealth should be collected from the spoils of the enemy not from the tears of the provincials a single instance will serve to display the rigor and even cruelty of aurelian one of the soldiers had seduced the wife of his host the guilty wretch was fastened to two trees forcibly drawn towards each other and his limbs were torn asunder by their sudden separation a few such examples impressed a salutary consternation the punishments of aurelian were terrible but he had seldom occasion to punish more than once the same offence his own conduct gave a sanction to his loss and the seditious legions dreaded a chief who had learned to obey and who was worthy to command End of chapter 11, part 1. Recording by Kritika. Chapter 11, part 2 of The Deline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru. Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 11. Reign of Claudius, Defeat of the Goths. Part 2. The death of Claudius had revived the fainting spirit of the Goths. The troops which guarded the passes of Mount Hamus and the banks of the Danube had been drawn away by the apprehension of a civil war, and it seems probable that the remaining body of the Gothic and Vandalic tribes embraced the favorable opportunity, abandoned their settlements of the Ukraine, traversed the rivers, and swelled with the new multitudes the destroying hosts of their countrymen. 
The united numbers were at length encountered by Aurelian, and the bloody and doubtful conflict ended only with the approach of night. Exhausted by so many calamities, which they had mutually endured and inflicted during a twenty years' war, the Goths and the Romans consented to a lasting and beneficial treaty. It was earnestly solicited by the barbarians, and cheerfully ratified by the legions, to whose suffrage the prudence of Aurelian referred the decision of that important question. The Gothic nation, engaged to supply the armies of Rome with a body of two thousand auxiliaries, consisting entirely of cavalry, and stipulated in return an undisturbed retreat, with a regular market as far as the Danube, provided by the emperor's care, but at their own expense. The treaty was observed with such religious fidelity, that when a party of five hundred men straggled from the camp in quest of plunder, the king or general of the barbarians commanded that the guilty leader should be apprehended, and shot to death with darts, as a victim devoted to the sanctity of their engagements. It is, however, not unlikely that the precaution of Aurelian, who had exacted as hostages the sons and daughters of the Gothic chiefs, contributed something to this pacific temper. The youths he trained in the exercise of arms, and near to his own person, to the damsels he gave a liberal and Roman education, and by bestowing them in marriage on some of his principal officers, gradually introduced between the two nations the closest and most endearing connections. But the most important condition of peace was understood rather than expressed in the treaty. Aurelian withdrew the Roman forces from Dacia, and tacitly relinquished that great province to the Goths and Vandals. His manly judgment convinced him of the solid advantages, and taught him to despise the seeming disgrace of thus contracting the frontiers of the monarchy. The Dacian subjects, removed from those distant possessions which they were unable to cultivate or defend, added strength and populousness to the southern side of the Danube, a fertile territory, which the repetition of our barbarous inroads had changed into a desert, was yielded to their industry, and the new province of Dacia still preserved the memory of Trajan's conquests. The old country of that name detained, however, a considerable number of its inhabitants, who dreaded exile more than a Gothic master. These degenerate Romans continued to serve the empire, whose allegiance they had renounced, by introducing amongst their conquerors the first notions of agriculture, the useful arts, and the conveniences of civilized life. An intercourse of commerce and language was gradually established between the opposite banks of the Danube, and after Dacia became an independent state, it often proved the firmest barrier of the empire against the invasions of the savages of the north. A sense of interest attached these more settled barbarians to the alliance of Rome, and a permanent interest very frequently ripens into sincere and useful friendship. This various colony, which filled the ancient province, and was insensibly blended into one great people, still acknowledged the superior renown and authority of the Gothic tribe, and claimed the fancied honor of a Scandinavian origin. At the same time, the lucky though accidental resemblance of the name of Gete, infused among the credulous Goths a vain persuasion that in a remote age their own ancestors, already seated in the Dacian provinces, had received instructions of Samolxis, and checked the victorious arms of Sesostris and Darius. While the vigorous and moderate conduct of Aurelian restored the Illyrian frontier, the nation of the Alemanni violated the conditions of peace, which either Gallenius had purchased, or Claudius had imposed, and, inflamed by their impatient youth, 
suddenly flew to arms. Forty thousand horse appeared in the field, and the numbers of the infantry doubled those of the cavalry. The first objects of their avarice were a few cities on the Raetian frontier, but their hopes soon rising with success, the rapid march of the Alemanni traced the line of devastation from the Danube to the Po. The emperor was almost at the same time informed of the eruption, and of the retreat of the barbarians. Collecting an active body of troops, he marched with silence and celerity along the skirts of the Hercurian forest, and the Alemanni, laden with the spoils of Italy, arrived at the Danube, without suspecting that on the opposite bank, and in an adventurous post, a Roman army lay concealed and prepared to intercept their return. Aurelian indulged the fatal security of the barbarians, and permitted about half their forces to pass the river without disturbance and without precaution. Their situation and astonishment gave him an easy victory. His skilful conduct improved the advantage. Disposing the legions in a semicircular form, he advanced the two horns of the crescent across the Danube, and wheeling them on a sudden towards the centre, enclosed the rear of the German host. The dismayed barbarians, on whatsoever side they cast their eyes, beheld, with despair, a wasted country, a deep and rapid stream, a victorious and implacable enemy. Reduced to this distressed condition, the Alemanni no longer disdained to sue for peace. Aurelian received their ambassadors at the head of his camp, and with every circumstance of martial pomp that could display the greatness and discipline of Rome. The legions stood by their arms in well-ordered ranks and awful silence. The principal commanders, distinguished by the ensigns of their rank, appeared on horseback on either side of the imperial throne. Behind the throne, the consecrated images of the emperor, and his predecessors, the golden eagles, and the various titles of the legions, engraved in letters of gold, were exalted in the air on lofty pikes covered with silver. When Aurelian assumed his seat, his manly grace and majestic figure taught the barbarians to rever the person as well as the purple of their conqueror. The ambassadors fell prostrate on the ground in silence. They were commanded to rise and permitted to speak. By the assistance of interpreters they extenuated their perfidy magnified their exploits, expatiated on the vicissitudes of fortune and the advantages of peace, and, with an ill-timed confidence, demanded a large subsidy, as the price of the allegiance which they offered to the Romans. The answer of the emperor was stern and imperious. He treated their offer with contempt, and their demand with indignation, reproached the barbarians, that they were as ignorant of the arts of war as of the laws of peace, and finally dismissed them with the choice only of submitting to his unconditional mercy, or awaiting the utmost severity of his resentment. Aurelian had resigned a distant province to the Goths, but it was dangerous to trust or to pardon these perfidious barbarians, whose formidable power kept Italy herself perpetual alarms. Immediately after this conference, it should seem that some unexpected emergency required the emperor's presence in Pannonia. He devolved on his lieutenants the care of finishing the destruction of the Alemanni, either by the sword or by the surer operations of famine. But an active despair has often triumphed over the indolent assurance of success. The barbarians, finding it impossible to traverse the Danube and the Roman camp, broke through the posts in their rears which were more feebly or less carefully guarded, and with incredible diligence, but by a different road, returned towards the mountains of Italy. Aurelian, who considered the war as totally extinguished, 
received the mortifying intelligence of the escape of the Alemanni, and of the ravage which they already committed in the territory of Milan. The legions were commanded to follow, with as much expedition as those heavy bodies were capable of exerting, the rapid flight of an enemy, whose infantry and cavalry moved with almost equal swiftness. A few days afterwards, the emperor himself marched to the relief of Italy, at the head of a chosen body of auxiliaries, among whom were the hostages and the cavalry of the Vandals, and of all the Praetorian guards who had served in the wars on the Danube. As the light troops of the Alemanni had spread themselves from the Alps to the Apennine, the incessant vigilance of Aurelian and his officers was exercised in the discovery, the attack, and the pursuit of the numerous detachments. Notwithstanding this desultory war, three considerable battles are mentioned, in which the principal force of both armies was obstinately engaged. The success was various. In the first, fought near Placentia, the Romans received so severe a blow that, according to the expression of a writer extremely partial to Aurelian, the immediate dissolution of the empire was apprehended. The crafty barbarians, who had lined the woods, suddenly attacked the legions in the dusk of the evening, and it is most probable, after the fatigue and disorder of a long march, the fury of their charge was irresistible. But, at length, after a dreadful slaughter, the patient firmness of the emperor rallied his troops, and restored in some degree the honour of his arms. The second battle was fought near Fano in Umbria, on the spot which, five hundred years before, had been fatal to the brother of Hannibal. Thus far the successful Germans had advanced along the Emilian and Flaminian way, with the design of sacking the defenceless mistress of the world. But Aurelian, who, watchful for the safety of Rome, still hung on their rear, found in this place the decisive moment of giving them a total and irretrievable defeat. The flying remnant of their host was exterminated in a third and last battle near Pavia, and Italy was delivered from the inroads of the Alemanni. Fear has been the original parent of superstition, and every new calamity urges trembling mortals to deprecate the wrath of their invisible enemies. Though the best hope of the Republic was in the valour and conduct of Aurelian, yet such was the public consternation when the barbarians were hourly expected at the gates of Rome, that by a decree of the Senate the Sibylline books were consulted. Even the Emperor himself, from a motive either of religion or policy, recommended this salutary measure, chided the tardiness of the Senate, and offered to supply whatever expense, whatever animals, whatever captives of any nation the gods should require. Notwithstanding this liberal offer, it does not appear that any human victims expiated with their bloods the sins of the Roman people. The Sibylline books enjoined ceremonies of a more harmless nature, processions of priests in white robes, attended by a chorus of youths and virgins, lustrations of the city and adjacent country, and sacrifices whose powerful influence disabled the barbarians from passing the mystic ground on which they had been celebrated. However puerile in themselves, these superstitious acts were subservient to the success of the war, and if, in the decisive battle of Fano, the Alemanni fancied they saw an army of spectres combating on the side of Aurelian, he received a real and effectual aid from this imaginary reinforcement. But whatever confidence might be placed in ideal ramparts, the experience of the past and the dread of the future induced the Romans to construct fortifications of a grosser and more substantial kind. The seven hills of Rome had been surrounded by the successors of Romulus, with an ancient wall of more than thirteen miles. The vast enclosure may seem disproportioned to the strength and numbers of the infant state, but it was necessary to secure an ample extent of pasture and arable land, 
against the frequented sand incursions of the tribes of Latium, the perpetual enemies of the Republic. With the progress of Roman greatness, the city and its inhabitants gradually increased, filled up the vacant space, pierced through the useless walls, covered the fields of Mars, and, on every side, followed the public highways in long and beautiful suburbs. The extent of the new walls, erected by Aurelian, and finished in the reign of Probus, was magnified by popular estimation to near fifty, but is reduced by accurate measurements to about twenty-one miles. It was a great, but a melancholy labor, since the defense of the capital betrayed the decline of the monarchy. The Romans, of a more prosperous age, who trusted to the arms of the legions the safety of the frontier camps, were very far from entertaining a suspicion that it would ever become necessary to fortify the seat of empire against the inroads of the barbarians. The victory of Claudius over the Goths, and the success of Aurelian against the Alemanni, had already restored to the arms of Rome their ancient superiority over the barbarous nations of the north. To chastise domestic tyrants, and to reunite the dismembered parts of the empire, was a task reserved for the second of those warlike emperors. Though he was acknowledged by the senate and people, the frontiers of Italy, Africa, Illyricum, and Thrace confined the limits of his reign. Gaul, Spain, and Britain, Egypt, Syria, and Asia Minor, were still possessed by two rebels, who alone, out of so numerous a list, had hitherto escaped the dangers of their situation, and to complete the ignominy of Rome, these rival thrones had been usurped by women. A rapid succession of monarchs had arisen and fallen in the provinces of Gaul. The rigid virtues of Posthumus served only to hasten his destruction. After suppressing a competitor, who had assumed the purple at Mintz, he refused to gratify his troops with the plunder of the rebellious city, and in the seventh year of his reign became the victim of their disappointed avarice. The death of Victorinus, his friend and associate, was occasioned by a less worthy cause. The shining accomplishments of that prince were stained by a licentious passion, which he indulged in acts of violence, with too little regard to the laws of society, or even those of love. He was slain at Cologne, by a conspiracy of jealous husbands, whose revenge would have appeared more justifiable had they spared the innocence of his son. After the murder of so many valiant princes, it is somewhat remarkable that a female for a long time controlled the fierce legions of Gaul, and still more singular that she was the mother of the unfortunate Victorinus. The arts and treasures of Victoria enabled her successively to place Marius and Tetricus on the throne, and to reign with a manly vigor under the name of those dependent emperors. Money of copper, of silver, and of gold was coined in her name. She assumed the titles of Augusta and mother of the camps. Her power ended only with her life, but her life was perhaps shortened by the ingratitude of Tetricus. When, at the instigation of his ambitious patroness, Tetricus assumed the ensigns of royalty, he was governor of the peaceful province of Aquitania, an employment suited to his character and education. He reigned four or five years over Gaul, Spain, and Britain, the slave and sovereign of a licentious army, whom he dreaded, and by whom he was despised. The valor and fortune of Aurelian at length opened the prospect of a deliverance. He ventured to disclose his melancholy situation, and conjured the emperor to hasten to the relief of his unhappy rival. Had this secret correspondence reached the ears of the soldiers, it would most probably have cost Tetricus his life. Nor could he resign the sceptre of the West without committing an act of treason against himself. 
he affected the appearances of a civil war, led his forces into the field against Aurelian, posted them in the most disadvantageous manner, betrayed his own counsels to his enemy, and with a few chosen friends deserted in the beginning of the action. The rebel legions, though disordered and dismayed by the unexpected treachery of their chief, defended themselves with desperate valour, till they were cut in pieces almost to a man, in this bloody and memorable battle, which was fought near Chalon in Champagne. The retreat of the irregular auxiliaries, Franks and Batavians, whom the conqueror soon compelled or persuaded to repass the Rhine, restored the general tranquillity, and the power of Aurelian was acknowledged from the wall of Antoninus to the columns of Hercules. As early as the reign of Claudius, the city of Autun, alone and unassisted, had ventured to declare against the legions of Gaul. After a siege of seven months, they stormed and plundered that unfortunate city, already wasted by famine. Lyon, on the contrary, had resisted with obstinate disaffection the arms of Aurelian. Wearied of the punishment of Lyon, but there is not any mention of the rewards of Autun. Such, indeed, is the policy of civil war, severely to remember injuries, and to forget the most important services. Revenge is profitable, gratitude is expensive. Aurelian had no sooner secured the person and provinces of Tetricus than he turned his arms against Zenobia, the celebrated queen of Palmyra and the East. Modern Europe has produced several illustrious women who have sustained with glory the weight of empire, nor is our own age destitute of such distinguished characters. But if we accept the doubtful achievements of Semiramis, Zenobia is perhaps the only female whose superior genius broke through the servile indolence imposed on her sex by the climate and manner of Asia. She claimed her descent from the Macedonian kings of Egypt, equalled in beauty her ancestor Cleopatra, and far surpassed that princess in chastity and valour. Zenobia was esteemed the most lovely as well as the most heroic of her sex. She was of dark complexion, for in speaking of a lady these trifles become important, her teeth were of pearly whiteness, and her large black eyes sparkled with uncommon fire, tempered by the most attractive sweetness. Her voice was strong and harmonious. Her manly understanding was strengthened and adorned by study. She was not ignorant of the Latin tongue, but possessed in equal perfection the Greek, the Syriac, and the Egyptian languages. She had drawn up for her use an epitom of Oriental history, and familiarly compared the beauties of Homer and Plato under the tuition of the sublime Longinus. This accomplished woman gave her hand to Odenatus, who, from a private station, raised himself to the dominion of the East. She soon became the friend and companion of a hero. In the intervals of war, Odenatus passionately delighted in the exercise of hunting. He pursued with ardor the wild beasts of the desert, lions, panthers, and bears, and the ardor of Zenobia in that dangerous amusement was not inferior to his own. She had inured her constitution to fatigue, disdained the use of a covered carriage, generally appeared on horseback in military habit, and sometimes marched several miles on foot at the head of the troops. The success of Odenatus was in great measure ascribed to her incomparable prudence and fortitude. Their splendid victories over the great king, whom they twice pursued as far as the gates of Tesipon, laid the foundations of their united fame and power, the armies which they commanded, and the provinces which they had saved, acknowledged not any other sovereigns than their invincible chiefs. The senate and people of Rome revered a stranger who had avenged their captive emperor, and even the insensible son of Valerian accepted Odenatus for his legitimate colleague. 
End of chapter 11, part 2. Recording by Monsbro, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 11, part 3 of the Deline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbro, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 11. Reign of Claudius, Defeat of the Goths. Part 3. After a successful expedition against the Gothic plunderers of Asia, the Palmyrenian prince returned to the city of Emesa in Syria. Invincible in war, he was there cut off by domestic treason. His favorite amusement of hunting was the cause, or at least the occasion of his death. His nephew, Maenius, presumed to dart his javelin before that of his uncle, and though admonished of his error, repeated the same insolence. As a monarch, and as a sportsman, Odinatus was provoked, took away his horse, a mark of ignominy among the barbarians, and chastised the rash youth by a short confinement. The offence was soon forgot, but the punishment was remembered, and Maenius, with a few daring associates, assassinated his uncle in the midst of a great entertainment. Herod, the son of Odinatus, though not of Zenobia, a young man of a soft and effeminate temper, was killed with his father. But Maenius obtained only the pleasure of revenge by this bloody deed. He had scarcely time to assume the title of Augustus, before he was sacrificed by Zenobia to the memory of her husband. With the assistance of his most faithful friends, she immediately filled the vacant throne, and governed with manly counsels Palmyra, Syria, and the East, above five years. By the death of Odenatus, that authority was at an end which the Senate had granted him only as a personal distinction, but his martial widow, disdaining both the Senate and Gallienus, obliged one of the Roman generals who was sent against her to retreat into Europe with the loss of his army and his reputation. Instead of the little passions which so frequently perplex a female reign, the steady administration of Zenobia was guided by the most judicious maxims of policy. If it was expedient to pardon, she would calm her resentment. If it was necessary to punish, she could impose silence on the voice of pity. Her strict economy was accused of avarice, yet on every proper occasion she appeared magnificent and liberal. The neighboring states of Arabia, Armenia, and Persia dreaded her enmity and solicited her alliance. To the dominions of Odinatus, which extended from the Euphrates to the frontiers of Bithynia, his widow added the inheritance of her ancestors, the populous and fertile kingdom of Egypt. The emperor Claudius acknowledged her merit, and was content that, while he pursued the Gothic war, she should assert the dignity of the empire in the east. The conduct, however, of Zenobia was attended with some ambiguity, not is it unlikely that she had conceived the design of erecting an independent and hostile monarchy. She blended with the popular manners of Roman princes the stately pomp of the courts of Asia, and exacted from her subjects the same adoration that was paid to the successor of Cyrus. She bestowed on her three sons a Latin education, and often showed them to the troops adorned with the imperial purple. For herself she reserved the diadem, with the splendid but doubtful title of Queen of the East. When Aurelian passed over into Asia, against an adversary whose sex alone could render her an object of contempt, his presence restored obedience to the province of Bithynia, already shaken by the arms and intrigues of Zenobia. 
advancing at the head of his legions, he accepted the submission of Ancyra, and was admitted into Tiana, after an obstinate siege, by the help of a perfidious citizen. The generous though fierce temper of Aurelian abandoned the traitor to the rage of the soldiers. A superstitious reverence induced him to treat with lenity the countrymen of Apollonius the philosopher. Antioch was deserted on his approach, till the emperor, by his salutary edicts, recalled the fugitives, and granted a general pardon to all, who, from necessity rather than choice, had been engaged in the service of the Palmyrenian queen. The unexpected mildness of such a conduct reconciled the minds of the Syrians, and as far as the gates of Emesa, the wishes of the people seconded the terror of his arms. Zenobia would have ill-deserved her reputation, had she indolently permitted the emperor of the west to approach within a hundred miles of her capital. The fate of the east was decided in two great battles, so similar in almost every circumstance that we can scarcely distinguish them from each other, except by observing that the first was fought near Antioch, and the second near Emesa. In both, the queen of Palmyra animated the armies by her presence, and devolved the execution of her orders on Tzabdes, who had already signalized his military talents by the conquest of Egypt. The numerous forces of Zenobia consisted for the most part of light archers, and of heavy cavalry clothed in complete steel. The Moorish and Illyrian horse of Aurelian were unable to sustain the ponderous charge of their antagonists. They fled in real or affected disorder, engaged the Palmyrenians in a laborious pursuit, harassed them by a desultory combat, and at length discomfited this impenetrable but unwieldy body of cavalry. The light infantry in the meantime, when they had exhausted their quivers, remaining without protection against the closer onset, exposed their naked sides to the swords of the legions. Aurelian had chosen these veteran troops, who were usually stationed on the upper Danube, and whose valor had been severely tried in the Alemannic war. After the defeat of Emesa, Zenobia found it impossible to collect the third army. As far as the frontier of Egypt, the nation subject to her empire had joined the standard of the conqueror who detached Probus, the bravest of his generals, to possess himself of the Egyptian provinces. Palmyra was the last resource of the widow of Odenatus. She retired within the walls of her capital, made every preparation for a vigorous resistance, and declared, with the intrepidity of a heroine, that the last moment of her reign and of her life should be the same. Amid the barren deserts of Arabia, a few cultivated spots rise like islands out of the sandy ocean, even the name of Tadmor, or Palmyra, by its signification in the Syriac as well as in the Latin language, denoted the multitude of palm-trees which afforded shade and verdure to that temperate region. The air was pure, and the soil, watered by some invaluable springs, was capable of producing fruits as well as corn. A place possessed of such singular advantages, and situated at a convenient distance between the Gulf of Persia and the Mediterranean, was soon frequented by the caravans which conveyed to the nations of Europe a considerable part of the rich commodities of India. Palmyra insensibly increased into an opulent and independent city, and connecting the Roman and the Parthian monarchies by the mutual benefits of commerce, was suffered to observe a humble neutrality, till at length, after the victories of Trajan, the little republic sunk into the bosom of Rome and flourished more than one hundred and fifty years in the subordinate, though honorable, rank of a colony. It was during that peaceful period, if we may judge from a few remaining inscriptions, that the wealthy Palmyrenians constructed those temples, palaces, and porticos of Grecian architecture, whose ruins, scattered over an extent of several miles, have deserved the curiosity of our travellers. The elevation of Odenatus and Zenobia appeared to reflect new splendor on their country, 
and Palmyra for a while stood forth the rival of Rome, but the competition was fatal, and ages of prosperity were sacrificed to a moment of glory. In his march over the sandy deserts between Emesa and Palmyra, the emperor Aurelian was perpetually harassed by the Arabs, nor could he always defend his army, and especially his baggage, from those flying troops of active and daring robbers, who watched the moment of a surprise, and eluded the slow pursuit of the legions. The siege of Palmyra was an object far more difficult and important, and the emperor, who with incessant vigor pressed the attacks in person, was himself wounded with a dart. The Roman people, says Aurelian in an original letter, speak with contempt of the war which I am waging against the woman. They are ignorant both of the character and of the power of Zenobia. It is impossible to enumerate her warlike preparations, of stones, of arrows, and of every species of missile weapons. Every part of the walls is provided with two or three ballists, and artificial fires are thrown from her military engines. The fear of punishment has armed her with desperate courage. Yet still I trust in the protecting deities of Rome, who have hitherto been favorable to all my undertakings. Doubtful, however, of the protection of the gods, and of the event of the siege, Aurelian judged it more prudent to offer terms of an advantageous capitulation to the queen, a splendid retreat, to the citizens their ancient privileges. His proposals were obstinately rejected, and the refusal was accompanied with insult. The firmness of Zenobia was supported by the hope that in a very short time famine would compel the Roman army to repass the desert, and by the reasonable expectation that the kings of the east, and particularly the Persian monarch, would arm in the defense of their most natural ally. But fortune and the perseverance of Aurelian overcame every obstacle. The death of Sapor, which happened about this time, distracted the councils of Persia, and the inconsiderable succours that attempted to relieve Palmyra were easily intercepted either by the arms or by the illiberality of the emperor. From every part of Syria, a regular succession of convoys safely arrived in the camp, which was increased by the return of Probus with his victorious troops from the conquest of Egypt. It was then that Zenobia resolved to fly. She mounted the fleetest of her dromedaries, and had already reached the banks of the Euphrates, about sixty miles from Palmyra, when she was overtaken by the pursuit of Aurelian's light horse, seized and brought back a captive to the feet of the emperor. Her capital soon afterwards surrendered, and was treated with unexpected lenity. The arms, horses, and camels, with an immense treasure of gold, silver, silk, and precious stones, were all delivered to the conqueror, who, leaving only a garrison of six hundred archers, returned to Emesa, and employed some time in the distribution of rewards and punishments at the end of so memorable a war which restored to the obedience of Rome those provinces that had renounced their allegiance since the captivity of Valerian. When the Syrian queen was brought into the presence of Aurelian, he sternly asked her how she had presumed to rise in arms against the emperors of Rome. The answer of Zenobia was a prudent mixture of respect and firmness. Because I disdained to consider as Roman emperors an Aureolus or a Gallienus, you alone I acknowledge as my conqueror and my sovereign. But as female fortitude is commonly artificial, so it is seldom steady or consistent. The courage of Zenobia deserted her in the hour of trial. She trembled at the angry clamors of the soldiers, who called aloud for her immediate execution, forgot the generous despair of Cleopatra, which she had proposed as her model, ignominiously purchased life by the sacrifice of her fame and her friends. It was their counsels, which governed the weakness of her sex, that she imputed the guilt of her obstinate resistance. It was on their heads that she directed the vengeance of the cruel Aurelian. 
the fame of Longinus, who was included among the numerous and perhaps innocent victims of her fear, will survive that of the queen who betrayed, or the tyrant who condemned him. Genius and learning were incapable of moving a fierce unlettered soldier, but they had served to elevate and harmonize the soul of Longinus. Without uttering a complaint, he calmly followed the executioner, pitying his unhappy mistress, and bestowing comforts on his afflicted friends. Returning from the conquest of the East, Aurelian had already crossed the straits which divided Europe from Asia, when he was provoked by the intelligence that the Palmyrenians had massacred the governor and garrison which he had left among them, and they again re erected the standard of revolt. Without a moment's deliberation, he once more turned his face towards Syria. Antioch was alarmed by his rapid approach, and the helpless city of Palmyra felt the irresistible weight of his resentment. We have a letter of Aurelian himself, in which he acknowledges that old men, women, children, and peasants had been involved in that dreadful execution which should have been confined to armed rebellion. And although his principal concern seems directed to the re-establishment of a temple of the sun, he discovers some pity for the remnants of the Palmyrenians, to whom he grants the permission of rebuilding and inhabiting their city. But it is easier to destroy than to restore. The seat of commerce, of arts, and of Zenobia gradually sunk into an obscure town, a trifling fortress, and at length a miserable village. The present citizens of Palmyra, consisting of thirty or forty families, have erected their mud cottages within the spacious court of a magnificent temple. Another and a last labor still awaited the indefatigable Aurelian to suppress a dangerous though obscure rebel who, during the revolt of Palmyra, had arisen on the banks of the Nile. Firmus, the friend and ally, as he proudly styled himself, of Odenatus and Zenobia, was no more than a wealthy merchant of Egypt. In the course of his trade to India, he had formed very intimate connections with the Saracens and the Blemmyes, whose situation on either coast of the Red Sea gave them an easy introduction into the Upper Egypt. The Egyptians he inflamed with the hope of freedom, and, at the head of their furious multitude, broke into the city of Alexandria, where he assumed the imperial purple, coined money, published edicts, and raised an army which, as he vainly boasted, he was capable of maintaining from the sole profits of his paper trade. Such troops were a feeble defense against the approach of Aurelian, and it seems almost unnecessary to relate that Firmus was routed, taken, tortured, and put to death. Aurelian might now congratulate the Senate, the people, and himself, and in little more than three years he had restored universal peace and order to the Roman world. Since the foundation of Rome, no general had more nobly deserved a triumph than Aurelian, nor was a triumph ever celebrated with superior pride and magnificence. The pomp was opened by twenty elephants, four royal tigers, and above two hundred of the most curious animals from every climate of the north, the east, and the south. They were followed by sixteen hundred gladiators, devoted to the cruel amusement of the amphitheatre. The wealth of Asia, the arms and ensigns of so many conquered nations, and the magnificent plate and wardrobe of the Syrian queen, were disposed in exact symmetry or artful disorder. The ambassadors of the most remote parts of the earth, of Ethiopia, Arabia, Persia, Bactriana, India, and China, all remarkable by their rich or singular dresses, displayed the fame and power of the Roman emperor, exposed likewise to the public view the presents that he had received, and particularly a great number of crowns of gold, the offerings of grateful cities. The victories of Aurelian were attested by a long train of captives who reluctantly attended his triumph. Goths, Vandals, Sarmatians, Alemanni, Franks, Gauls, Syrians, and Egyptians. Each people was distinguished by its peculiar inscription, 
and the title of Amazons was bestowed on ten martial heroines of the Gothic nation who had been taken in arms. But every eye, disregarding the crowd of captives, was fixed on the Emperor Tetricus and the Queen of the East. The former, as well as his son, whom he had created Augustus, was dressed in Gallic trousers, a saffron tunic, and a robe of purple. The beauteous figure of Zenobia was confined by fetters of gold, a slave supported the gold chain which encircled her neck, and she almost fainted under the intolerable weight of jewels. She preceded on foot the magnificent chariot, in which she once hoped to enter the gates of Rome. It was followed by two other chariots, still more sumptuous, of Ordinatus and the Persian monarch. The triumphal car of Aurelian, it had formerly been used by a Gothic king, was drawn on this memorable occasion, either by four stags or by four elephants. The most illustrious of the senate, the people, and the army closed this solemn procession. Unfeigned joy, wonder, and gratitude swelled the acclamations of the multitude, but the satisfaction of the senate was clouded by the appearance of Tetricus, nor could they suppress a rising murmur the haughty emperor should thus expose to public ignominy the person of a Roman and a magistrate. But, however, in the treatment of his unfortunate rivals, Aurelian might indulge his pride. He behaved towards them with a generous clemency, which was seldom exercised by the ancient conquerors. Princes who, without success, had defended their throne or freedom, were frequently strangled in prison as soon as the triumphal pomp ascended the capital. These usurpers, whom their defeat had convicted of the crime of treason, were permitted to spend their lives in affluence and honourable repose. The emperor presented Zenobia with an elegant villa at Tibur, or Tivoli, about twenty miles from the capital. The Syrian queen insensibly sunk into a Roman matron, her daughters married into noble families, and her race was not yet extinct in the fifth century. Tetricus and his son were reinstated in their ranks and fortunes. They erected on the Salian hill a magnificent palace, and as soon as it was finished, invited Aurelian to supper. On his entrance, he was agreeably surprised with a picture which represented their singular history. They were delineated offering to the emperor a civic crown and a scepter of Gaul, and again receiving at his hands the ornaments of the senatorial dignity. The father was afterwards invested with the government of Lucania, and Aurelian, who soon admitted the abdicated monarch to his friendship and conversation, familiarly asked him whether it were not more desirable to administer a province of Italy than the reign beyond the Alps. The son long continued a respectable member of the Senate, nor was there any one of the Roman nobility more esteemed by Aurelian as well as by his successors. So long and so various was the pomp of Aurelian's triumph, that although it opened with the dawn of day, the slow majesty of the procession ascended not the capital before the ninth hour, and it was already dark when the emperor returned to the palace. Pestiola was protracted by theatrical representations, the games of the circus, the hunting of wild beasts, combat of gladiators, and naval engagements. Liberal donatives were distributed to the army and people, and several institutions, agreeable or beneficial to the city, contributed to perpetuate the glory of Aurelian. A considerable portion of his oriental spoils was consecrated to the gods of Rome, the capital, and every other temple glittered with the offerings of his ostentious piety, and the temple of the sun alone received about fifteen thousand pounds of gold. This last was in a magnificent structure, erected by the emperor on the side of the Quirinal hill, and dedicated soon after the triumph that deity whom Aurelian adorned as the parent of his life and fortune. His mother had been an inferior priestess in the chapel of the sun, 
a peculiar devotion to the god of light was a sentiment which the fortunate peasant imbibed in his infancy and every step of his elevation every victory of his reign fortified superstition by gratitude the arms of aurelian had vanquished the foreign and domestic foes of the republic we are assured that by his salutary rigour crimes and factions mischievous arts and pernicious connivance the luxurious growth of a feeble and oppressive government were eradicated throughout the roman world but if we attentively reflect how much swifter is the process of corruption than its cure and if we remember that the years abandoned to public disorders exceeded the months allotted to the martial reign of aurelian we must confess that a few short intervals of peace were insufficient for the arduous work of reformation even his attempts to restore the integrity of the coin was opposed by a formidable insurrection the emperor's vexation breaks out in one of his private letters surely says he the gods have decreed that my life should be a perpetual warfare a sedition within the walls has just now given birth to a very serious civil war the workmen of the mint at the instigation of felicissimus a slave to whom i had entrusted an employment in the finances have risen in rebellion they are at length suppressed but seven thousand of my soldiers have been slain in the contest of those troops whose ordinary station is in dacia and the camps along the danube other writers who confirm the same fact add likewise that it happened soon after aurelian's triumph the decisive engagement was fought on the salian hill that the workmen of the mint had adulterated the coin and that the emperor restored the public credit by delivering out good money in exchange for the bad which the people was commanded to bring into the treasury we might content ourselves with relating this extraordinary transaction but we cannot dissemble how much in its present form it appears to us inconsistent and incredible the debasement of the coin is indeed well suited to the administration of gallienus nor is it unlikely that the instruments of the corruption might dread the inflexible justice of aurelian but the guilt as well as the profit must have been confined to a very few nor is it easy to conceive by what arts they could arm a people whom they had injured against the monarch whom they had betrayed we might naturally expect that such miscreants should have shared the public detestation with the informers and the other ministers of oppression and that the reformation of the coin should have been an action equally popular with the destruction of those obsolete accounts which by the emperor's order were burnt in the forum of trajan in an age when the principles of commerce were so imperfectly understood the most desirable end might perhaps be effected by harsh and injudicious means but a temporary grievance of such a nature can scarcely excite and support a serious civil war the repetition of intolerable taxes imposed either on the land or the necessities of life may at last provoke those who will not or who cannot relinquish their country but the case is far otherwise in every operation which by whatsoever expedience restores the just value of money the transient evil is soon obliterated by the permanent benefit the loss is divided amongst multitudes and if a few wealthy individuals experience a sensible diminution of treasure with their riches they at the same time lose the degree of weight and importance which they derive from the possession of them however aurelian might choose to disguise the real cause of the insurrection his reformation of the coin could furnish only a faint pretence to a party already powerful and discontented rome though deprived of freedom was distracted by faction the people towards whom the emperor himself a plebeian always expressed a particular fondness lived in perpetual dissension with the senate the equestrian order and the praetorian guards nothing less than the firm though secret conspiracy of these orders of the authority of the first 
the wealth of the second, and the arms of the third, could have displayed a strength capable of contending in battle with the veteran legions of the Danube, which, under the conduct of a martial sovereign, had achieved the conquest of the west and of the east. Whatever was the cause or the object of this rebellion, imputed with so little probability to the workmen of the mint, Aurelian used his victory with unrelenting rigor. He was naturally of a severe disposition. A peasant and a soldier, his nerves yielded not easily to the impressions of sympathy, and he could sustain without emotion the sight of tortures and death. Trained from his earliest youth in the exercise of arms, he set too small a value on the life of a citizen, chastised by military execution the slightest offences, and transferred the stern discipline of the camp into the civil administration of the laws. His love of justice often became a blind and furious passion, and whenever he deemed his own or the public safety endangered, he disregarded the rules of evidence and the proportion of punishments. The unprovoked rebellion with which the Romans rewarded his services exasperated his haughty spirit. The noblest families of the capital were involved in the guilt or suspicion of this dark conspiracy. A nasty spirit of revenge urged the bloody persecution, and it proved fatal to one of the nephews of the emperor. The executioners, if we may use the expression of a contemporary poet, were fatigued, the prisons were crowded, and the unhappy senate lamented the death or absence of its most illustrious members. Nor was the pride of Aurelian less offensive to that assembly than his cruelty. Ignorant or impatient of the restraints of civil institutions, he disdained to hold his power by any other title than that of the sword, and governed by right of conquest and empire, which he had saved and subdued. It was observed by one of the most sagacious of the Roman princes that the talents of his predecessor Aurelian were better suited to the command of an army than to the government of an empire. Conscious of the character in which nature and experience had enabled him to excel, he again took to the field a few months after his triumph. It was expedient to exercise the restless temper of the legions in some foreign war, and a Persian monarch, exulting in the shame of a Valerian, still braved with impunity the offended majesty of Rome. At the head of an army, less formidable by its numbers than by its discipline and valor, the emperor advanced as far as the straits which divide Europe from Asia. He there experienced that the most absolute power is a weak defense against the effects of despair. He had threatened one of his secretaries who was accused of extortion, and it was known that he seldom threatened in vain. The last hope which remained from the criminal was to involve some of his principal officers in the army in his danger, or at least in his fears. Artfully counterfeiting his master's hand, he showed them, in a long and bloody list, their own names devoted to death. Without suspecting or examining the fraud, they resolved to secure their lives by the murder of the emperor. On his march between Byzantium and Heraclea, Aurelian was suddenly attacked by the conspirators, whose stations gave them a right to surround his person, and after a short resistance, fell by the hand of Mukapur, a general whom he had always loved and trusted. He died regretted by the army, detested by the senate, but universally acknowledged as a warlike and fortunate prince, the useful, though severe reformer of a degenerate state. End of chapter 11 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. 
The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 12, Reigns of Tacitus, Proba, Carew, and His Sons, Part 1. Conduct of the Army and Senate after the death of Aurelian. Reigns of Tacitus, Proba, Carew, and His Sons. Such was the unhappy condition of the Roman emperors, that whatever might be their conduct, their fate was commonly the same. A life of pleasure or virtue, of severity or mildness, of indolence or glory, alike led to an untimely grave, and almost every reign is closed by the same disgusting repetition of treason and murder. The death of Orleans, however, is remarkable by its extraordinary consequences. The legions admired, lamented, and revenged their victorious chief. The artifice of his perfidious secretary was discovered and punished. The deluded conspirators attended the funeral of their injured sovereign, with sincere or well-feigned contrition, and submitted to the unanimous resolution of the military order, which was signified by the following epistle. The brave and fortunate armies to the Senate and people of Rome, the crime of one man and the error of many, have deprived us of the late Emperor Aurelian. May it please you, venerable lords and fathers, to place him in the number of the gods, and to appoint a successor whom your judgment shall declare worthy of the imperial purple. None of those whose guilt or misfortune have contributed to our loss shall ever reign over us. The Roman senators heard, without surprise, that another emperor had been assassinated in his camp. They secretly rejoiced in the fall of Aurelian, but, the modest and dutiful address of the legions, when it was communicated in full assembly by the consul, diffused the most pleasing astonishment. Such honours as fear and perhaps esteem could extort, they liberally poured forth on the memory of their deceased sovereign. Such acknowledgments as gratitude could inspire, they returned to the faithful armies of the Republic, who entertained so just a sense of the legal authority of the Senate in the choice of an emperor. Yet notwithstanding this flattering appeal, the most prudent of the assembly declined exposing their safety and dignity to the caprice of an armed multitude. The strength of the legions was, indeed, a pledge of their sincerity, since those who may command are seldom reduced to the necessity of dissembling. But could it naturally be expected that a hasty repentance would correct the inveterate habits of fourscore years? Should the soldiers relapse into their accustomed seditions, their insolence might disgrace the majesty of the Senate, and prove fatal to the object of its choice. Motives like these dictated a decree by which the election of a new emperor was referred to the suffrage of the military order. The contention that ensued is one of the best attested but most improbable events in the history of mankind. 
The troops, as if satuated with the exercise of power, again conjured the Senate to invest one of its own body with the imperial purple. The Senate still persisted in its refusal, the army in its request. The reciprocal offer was pressed and rejected at least three times, and, whilst the obstinate modesty of either party was resolved to receive a master from the hands of the other, eight months insensibly elapsed, an amazing period of tranquil anarchy, during which the Roman world remained without a sovereign, without an usurper, and without a sedition. The generals and magistrates appointed by Orleans continued to execute their ordinary functions, and it is observed that a proconsul of Asia was the only considerable person removed from his office in the whole course of the interregnum. An event somewhat similar, but much less authentic, is supposed to have happened after the death of Romulus, who, in his life and character, bore some affinity with Orlean. The throne was vacant during twelve months, till the election of a Sabine philosopher, and the public peace was guarded in the same manner, by the union of the several orders of the state. But in the time of Numa and Romulus, the arms of the people were controlled by the authority of the patricians, and the balance of freedom was easily preserved in a small and virtuous community. The decline of the Roman state, far different from its infancy, was attended with every circumstance that could banish from an interregnum the prospect of obedience and harmony, an immense and tumultuous capital, a wide extent of empire, the servile equality of despotism, an army of 400,000 mercenaries, and the experience of frequent revolutions. Yet notwithstanding all these temptations, the discipline and memory of Orleans still restrained the sedigious temper of the troops, as well as the fatal ambition of their leaders. The flower of the legions maintained their stations on the banks of the Bosphorus, and the imperial standard awed the less powerful camps of Rome and of the provinces. A generous though transient enthusiasm seemed to animate the military order, and we may hope that a few real patriots cultivated the returning friendship of the army and the senate, as the only expedient capable of restoring the republic to its ancient beauty and vigour. On the 25th of September, near eight months after the murder of Orleans, the consul convoked an assembly of the senate, and reported the doubtful and dangerous situation of the empire. He slightly insinuated that the precarious loyalty of the soldiers depended on the chance of every hour, and of every accident, that he represented, with the most convincing eloquence, the various dangers that might attend any further delay in the choice of an emperor. Intelligence, he said, was already received, that the Germans had passed the Rhine, and occupied some of the strongest and most opulent cities of Gaul. The ambition of the Persian king kept the East in perpetual alarms. Egypt, Africa, and Illyricum 
were exposed to foreign and domestic arms, and the levity of Syria would prefer even a female sceptre to the sanctity of the Roman laws. The consul, then addressing himself to Tacitus, the first of the senators, required his opinion on the important subject of a proper candidate for the vacant throne. If we can prefer personal merit to accidental greatness, we shall esteem the birth of Tacitus more truly noble than that of kings. He claimed his descent from the philosophic historian, whose writings will instruct the last generations of mankind. The senator Tacitus was then seventy-five years of age. The long period of his innocent life was adorned with wealth and honors. He had twice been invested with the consular dignity, and enjoyed with elegance and sobriety his ample patrimony of between two and three million sterling. The experience of so many princes whom he had esteemed or endured, from the vain follies of Alagabalus to the useful rigor of Orleon, taught him to form a just estimate of the duties, the dangers, and the temptations of their sublime station. From the assiduous study of his immortal ancestor, he derived the knowledge of the Roman constitution and of human nature. The voice of the people had already named Tacitus as the citizen the most worthy of empire. The ungrateful rumor reached his ears and induced him to seek the retirement of one of his villas in Campania. He had passed two months in the delightful privacy of Bay, when he reluctantly obeyed the summons of the consul to resume his honorable place in the Senate, and to assist the Republic with his counsels on this important occasion. He arose to speak, when from every quarter of the house he was saluted with the names of Augustus and Emperor. Tacitus Augustus, the gods preserve thee, we choose thee for our sovereign. To thy care we entrust the republic and the world. Accept the empire from the authority of the senate. It is due to thy rank, to thy conduct, to thy manners. As soon as the tumult of acclamation subsided, Tacitus attempted to decline the dangerous honor, and to express his wonder that they should elect his age and infirmities to succeed the martial vigor of Orleans. Are these limbs, conscript fathers, fitted to sustain the weight of armor, or to practice the exercises of the camp? The variety of climates and the hardships of a military life would soon oppress a feeble constitution, which subsists only by the most tender management. My exhausted strength scarcely enables me to discharge the duty of a senator. How insufficient would it prove to the arduous labors of war and government? Can you hope that the legions will respect a weak old man, whose days have been spent in the shade of peace and retirement? Can you desire that I should ever find reason to regret the favorable opinion of the Senate? The reluctance of Tacitus, and it might possibly be sincere, 
was encountered by the affectionate obstinacy of the Senate. Five hundred voices repeated at once, in eloquent confusion, that the greatest of the Roman princes, Numa, Trajan, Hadrian, and the Antonines, had ascended the throne in a very advanced season of life, that the mind, not the body, a sovereign, not a soldier, was the object of their choice, and that they expected from him no more than to guide by his wisdom the valour of the legions. These pressing, though tumultuary, instances were seconded by a more regular oration of Metius Falconus, the next on the consular bench to Tacitus himself. He reminded the assembly of the evils which Rome had endured from the vices of headstrong and capricious youths, congratulated them on the election of a virtuous and experienced senator, and, with a manly, though perhaps a selfish, freedom, exhorted Tacitus to remember the reasons of his elevation, and to seek a successor, not in his own family, but in the Republic. The speech of Falconus was enforced by general acclamation. The emperor-elect submitted to the authority of his country, and received the voluntary homage of his equals. The judgment of the Senate was confirmed by the consent of the Roman people, and of the Praetorian guards. The administration of Tacitus was not unworthy of his life and principles. A grateful servant of the Senate, he considered that national council as the author, and himself as the subject of the laws. He studied to heal the wounds which imperial pride, civil discord, and military violence had inflicted on the Constitution, and to restore, at least, the image of the ancient republic, as it had been preserved by the policy of Augustus and the virtues of Trajan and the Antonines. It may not be useless to recapitulate some of the most important prerogatives which the Senate appeared to have regained by the election of Tacitus. 1. To invest one of their body, under the title of emperor, with the general command of the armies and the government of the frontier provinces. 2. To determine the list or, as it was then styled, the College of Consuls. They were twelve in number, who, in successive pairs, each during the space of two months, filled the year and represented dignity of that ancient office. The authority of the Senate, in the nomination of the Consuls, was exercised with such independent freedom that no regard was paid to an irregular request of the emperor in favour of his brother Florinus. The Senate, exclaimed Tacitus, with the honest transport of a patriot, understand the character of a prince whom they have chosen. 3. To appoint the proconsuls and presidents of the provinces, and to confer on all magistrates their civil jurisdiction. 4. To receive appeals through the intermediate office of the prefect of the city from all the tribunals of the empire. 5. To give force and validity 
by their decrees, to such as they should approve of the emperor's edict. 6. To these several branches of authority we may add some inspection over the finances, since, even in the stern reign of Orleans, it was in their power to divert a part of the revenue from the public service. Circular epistles were sent, without delay, to all the principal cities of the empire, Treves, Milan, Aquilia, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, Antioch, Alexandria, and Carthage, to claim their obedience, and to inform them of the happy revolution which had restored the Roman Senate to its ancient dignity. Two of these epistles are still extant. We likewise possess two very singular fragments of the private correspondence of the senators on this occasion. They discover the most excessive joy and the most unbounded hopes. Cast away your indolence. It is thus that one of the senators addressed his friend. Emerge from your retirements, obey, and paternally, give yourself to the city, to the senate, Rome flourishes, the whole republic flourishes, thanks to the Roman army, to an army truly Roman, at length we have recovered our just authority, the end of all our desires, we hear appeals, we appoint proconsuls, we create emperors, perhaps too we may restrain them, to the wise a word is sufficient. These lofty expectations were, however, soon disappointed, nor indeed was it possible that the armies and the provinces should long obey the luxuries and unwarlike nobles of Rome. On the slightest touch, the unsupported fabric of their pride and power fell to the ground. The expiring senate displayed a sudden luster, blazed for a moment, and was extinguished forever. All that had yet passed at Rome was no more than a theatrical representation, unless it was ratified by the more substantial power of the legions. Leaving the senators to enjoy their dream of freedom and ambition, Tacitus proceeded to the Thracian camp, and was there, by the Praetorian prefect, presented to the assembled troops as the prince whom they themselves had demanded, and whom the senate had bestowed. As soon as the prefect was silent, the emperor addressed himself to the soldiers with eloquence and propriety. He gratified their avarice by a liberal distribution of treasure, under the names of pay and donative. He engaged their esteem by a spirited declaration that although his age might disable him from the performance of military exploits, his counsel should never be unworthy of a Roman general, the successor of the brave Orlean. Whilst the deceased emperor was making preparations for a second expedition into the east, he had negotiated with the Alani, a Scythian people, who pitched their tents in the neighbourhood of the Lake Mootis. Those barbarians, allured by presents and subsidies, had promised to invade Persia with a numerous body of light cavalry. They were faithful to their engagements, but when they arrived on the Roman frontier, 
Aulian was already dead. The design of Persian war was at least suspended, and the generals, who, during the interregnum, exercised a doubtful authority, were unprepared either to receive or to oppose them. Provoked by such treatment, which they considered as trifling and perfidious, the Alani had recourse to their own valour for their payment and revenge, and as they moved with the usual swiftness of Tartars, they had soon spread themselves over the provinces of Pontus, Cappadocia, Cilicia, and Galatia. The legions, who from the opposite shores of the Bosphorus could almost distinguish the flames of the cities and villages, impatiently urged their general to lead them against the invaders. The conduct of Tacitus was suitable to his age and station. He convinced the barbarians of the faith, as well as the power of the empire. Great numbers of the Alani, appeased by the punctual discharge of the engagements which Aulian had contracted with them, relinquished their booty and captives, and quietly retreated to their own deserts, beyond the Phasis. Against the remainder, who refused peace, the Roman emperor waged, in person, a successful war, seconded by an army of brave and experienced veterans. In a few weeks he delivered the provinces of Asia from the terror of the Scythian invasion. But the glory and life of Tacitus were of short duration. Transported in the depth of winter from the soft retirement of Campania to the foot of Mount Caucasus, he sunk under the unaccustomed hardships of a military life. The fatigues of the body were aggravated by the cares of the mind. For a while the angry and selfish passions of the soldiers had been suspended by the enthusiasm of public virtue. They soon broke out with redoubled violence, and raged in the camp, and even in the tent of the aged emperor. His mild and amiable character served only to inspire contempt, and he was incessantly tormented with factions which he could not assuage, and by demands which it was impossible to satisfy. Whatever flattering expectations he had conceived of reconciling the public disorders, Tacitus soon was convinced that the licentiousness of the army disdained the feeble restraint of laws, and his last hour was hastened by anguish and disappointment. It may be doubtful whether the soldiers imbrued their hands in the blood of this innocent prince. It is certain that their insolence was the cause of his death. He expired at Tyana in Cappadocia, after a reign of only six months and about twenty days. The eyes of Tacitus were scarcely closed before his brother Florinus showed himself unworthy to reign by the hasty usurpation of the purple. Without expecting the approbation of the Senate, the reverence for the Roman constitution, which yet influenced the camp and the provinces, was sufficiently strong to dispose them to censure, but not to provoke them to oppose, the precipitate ambition of Florinus. The discontent would have evaporated in idle murmurs, 
had not the general of the east, the heroic Probar, boldly declared himself the avenger of the senate. The contest, however, was still unequal. Nor could the most able leader at the head of the effinite troops of Egypt and Syria encounter with any hopes of victory the legions of Europe, whose irresistible strength appeared to support the brother of Tacitus. But the fortune and activity of Probar triumphed over every obstacle. The hardy veterans of his rival, accustomed to cold climates, sickened and consumed away in sultry heats of Cilicia, where the summer proved remarkably unwholesome. Their numbers were diminished by frequent desertion, the passes of the mountains were feebly defended, Tarsus opened its gates, and the soldiers of Florinus, when they had permitted him to enjoy the imperial title about three months, delivered the empire from civil war by the easy sacrifice of a prince whom they despised. The perpetual revolutions of the throne had so perfectly erased every notion of hereditary title that the family of an unfortunate emperor was incapable of exciting the jealousy of his successors. The children of Tacitus and Florinus were permitted to descend into a private station and to mingle with the general mass of the people. Their poverty indeed became an additional safeguard to their innocence. When Tacitus was elected by the Senate, he resigned his ample patrimony to the public service, an act of generosity specious in appearance, but which evidently disclosed his intention of transmitting the empire to his descendants. The only consolation of their fallen state was the remembrance of transient greatness, and a distant hope, the child of a flattering prophecy, that at the end of a thousand years a monarch of the race of Tacitus should arise, the protector of the Senate, the restorer of Rome, and the conqueror of the whole earth. The peasants of Illyricum, who had already given Claudius and Orlean to the sinking empire, had an equal right to glory in the elevation of Probar. About twenty years before, the Emperor Valerian, with his usual penetration, had discovered the rising merit of the young soldier, on whom he conferred the rank of tribune, long before the age prescribed by the military regulations. The tribune soon justified his choice by a victory over a great body of Sarmatians, in which he saved the life of a near relation of Valerian, and deserved to receive from the emperor's hand the collars, bracelets, spears, and banners, the mural and the civic crown, and all the honorable rewards reserved by ancient Rome for successful valor. The third, and afterwards the tenth, legion were entrusted to the command of Probar who, in every step of his promotion, showed himself superior to the station which filled Africa and Pontus, the Rhine, the Danube, the Euphrates, and the Nile, by turns afforded him the most splendid occasions of displaying his personal prowess and his conduct in war. Orlean was indebted for the honest courage 
with which he often checked the cruelty of his master. Tacitus, who desired by the abilities of his generals to supply his own deficiency of military talents, named him commander-in-chief of all the eastern provinces, with five times the usual salary, the promise of the consulship, and the hope of a triumph. When Probar ascended the imperial throne, he was about forty-four years of age, in the full possession of his fame, of the love of the army, and of a mature vigor of mind and body. His acknowledged merit, and the success of his arms against Florinus, left him without an enemy or a competitor. Yet if we may credit his own professions, very far from being desirous of the empire, he had accepted it with the most sincere reluctance. But it is no longer in my power, says Probar, in a private letter, to lay down a title so full of envy and of danger. I must continue to personate the character which the soldiers have imposed upon me. His dutiful address to the Senate displayed the sentiments, or at least the language, of a Roman patriot. When you elected one of your order, conscript fathers, to succeed the emperor, Orleon, you acted in a manner suitable to your justice and wisdom, for you are the legal sovereigns of the world, and the power which you derive from your ancestors will descend to your posterity. Happy would it have been, if Florinus, instead of unsurfing the purple of his brother, like a private inheritance, had expected what your majesty might determine, either in his favour or in that of other person. The prudent soldiers have punished his rashness. To me they have offered the title of Augustus, but I submit to your clemency my pretensions and my merits. When this respectful epistle was read by the consul, the senators were unable to disguise their satisfaction that Probar should condescend thus numbly to solicit a sceptre which he already possessed. They celebrated with the warmest gratitude his virtues, his exploits, and above all his moderation. A decree immediately passed, without a dissenting voice, to ratify the election of the eastern armies, and to confer on their chief all the several branches of the imperial dignity, the names of Caesar and Augustus, the title of father of his country, the right of making in the same day three motions in the Senate, the office of Pontifex, Maximus, the tribunician power and the proconsular command, a mode of investiture, which, though it seemed to multiply the authority of the emperor, expressed the constitution of the ancient republic. The reign of Probus corresponded with this fair beginning. The Senate was permitted to direct the civil administration of the empire. Their faithful general asserted the honor of the Roman arms, and often laid at their feet crowns of gold and barbaric trophies, the fruits of his numerous victories. Yet, whilst he gratified their vanity, he must secretly have despised their indolence and weakness. 
though it was every moment in their power to repeal the disgraceful edict of Gallinus, the proud successors of the Scipios patiently acquiesced in their exclusion from all military employments. They soon experienced that those who refused the sword must renounce the sceptre. End of chapter 12, part 1「and his sons. Part 2 The strength of Aurelian had crushed on every side of the enemies of Rome. After his death they seemed to revive with an increase of fury and of numbers. They were again vanquished by the active vigour of Probar, who, in a short reign of about six years, equalled the fame of ancient heroes and restored peace and order to every province of the Roman world. The dangerous frontier of Rascia is so firmly secured that he left it without the suspicion of an enemy. He broke the wandering power of the Sarmatian tribes, and by the terror of his arms compelled those barbarians to relinquish their spoil. The Gothic nation courted the alliance of so warlike an emperor, he attacked the Azurians in their mountains, besaged and took several of their strongest castles, and flattered himself that he had forever suppressed a domestic foe, whose independence so deeply wounded the majesty of the empire. The troubles excited by the usurper Firmus in the upper Egypt had never been perfectly appeased, and the city of Polemus and Coptus fortified by the alliance of the Blemies, still maintained an obscure rebellion. The chastisement of those cities, and of their auxiliaries, the savages of the south, is said to have alarmed the court of Persia, and the great king sued in vain for the friendship of Probar. Most of the exploits which distinguished his reign were achieved by the personal valour and conduct of the emperor, insomuch that the writer of his life expresses some amazement how, in so short a time, a single man could be present in so many distant wars. The remaining actions he entrusted to the care of his lieutenants, the judicious choice of whom forms no inconsiderable part of his glory. Carus, Diocletian, Maximian, Constantius, Galerius, Asclepidius, and Annabilius, and a crowd of other chiefs, who afterwards ascended or supported the throne, were trained to arms in the severe school of Aurelian and Probar. But the most important service which Probar rendered to the Republic was the deliverance of Gaul, 
and the recovery of seventy flourishing cities oppressed by the barbarians of Germany, who, since the death of Orleans, had ravaged that great province with impunity. Among the various multitude of those fierce invaders we may distinguish, with some degree of clearness, three great armies, or rather nations, successively vanquished by the valour of Probar. He drove back the Franks into their morasses, a descriptive circumstance from whence we may infer that the confederacy known by the manly appellation of free already occupied the flat maritime country, intersected and almost overflown by the stagnating waters of the Rhine, and that several tribes of the Frisians and Batavians had acceded to their alliance. He vanquished the Burgundians, a considerable people of the Vandalus race. They had wandered in quest of booty from the banks of the Oder to those of the Seine. They esteemed themselves sufficiently fortunate to purchase, by the restitution of all their booty, the permission of an undisturbed retreat. They attempted to elude that article of the treaty. Their punishment was immediate and terrible, but of all the invaders of Gaul, the most formidable were the Lygians, a distant people, who reigned over a wide domain on the frontiers of Poland and Silesia. In the Lygian nation, the Ari held the first rank by their numbers of fierceness. The Ari, it is thus that they are described by the energy of Tacitus, studied to improve by art and circumstances the innate terrors of their barbarism. Their shields are black, their bodies are painted black. They choose for the combat the darkest hour of the night. Their host advances, covered, as it were, with a funeral shade. Nor do they often find an enemy capable of sustaining so strange and infernal an aspect. Of all our senses, the eyes are first vanquished in battle. Yet the arms and discipline of the Romans easily discomfited these horrid phantoms. The Lygi were defeated in a general engagement, and Semno, the most renowned of their chiefs, fell alive into the hands of Probar. That prudent emperor, unwilling to reduce a brave people to despair, granted them an honourable capitulation, and permitted them to return in safety to their native country. But the losses which they suffered in the march, the battle, and the retreat, broke the power of the nation, nor is the Lygian name ever repeated in the history either of Germany or of the empire. The deliverance of Gaul is reported to have cost the lives of 400,000 of the invaders, a work of labor to the Romans, and of expense to the emperor, who gave a piece of gold for the head of every barbarian. But as the fame of warriors is built on the destruction of humankind, we may naturally suspect that the Sangeria account was multiplied by the avarice of the soldiers, 
and accepted without any very severe examination by the liberal vanity of Probar. Since the expedition of Maximin, the Roman generals had confined their ambition to a defensive war against the nations of Germany, who perpetually pressed on the frontiers of the empire. The more daring Probar pursued his Gaelic victories, passed the Rhine, and displayed his invincible eagles on the banks of the Elbe and the Necker. He was fully convinced that nothing could reconcile the minds of the barbarians to peace, unless they experienced, in their own country, the calamities of war. Germany, exhausted by the ill success of the last emigration, was astonished by his presence. Nine of the most considerable princes repaired to his camp, and fell prostrate at his feet. Such a treaty was humbly received by the Germans, as it pleased the conqueror to dictate. He exacted a strict restitution of the effects and captives which they had carried away from the provinces, and obliged their own magistrates to punish the more obstinate robbers who presumed to detain any part of the spoil. A considerable tribute of corn, cattle, and horses, the only wealth of barbarians, was reserved for the use of the garrisons which Probar established on the limits of their territory. He even entertained some thoughts of compelling the Germans to relinquish the exercise of arms, and to trust their differences to the justice, their safety to the power of Rome. To accomplish these salutary ends, the constant residence of an imperial governor, supported by a numerous army, was indispensably requisite. Probar therefore judged it more expedient to defer the execution of so great a design, which was indeed rather a specious than solid utility. Had Germany been reduced into the state of a province, the Romans, with immense labour and expense, would have acquired only a more extensive boundary to defend against the fiercer and more active barbarians of Scythia. Instead of reducing the warlike natives of Germany to the condition of subjects, Probar contented himself with the humble expedient of raising a bulwark against their inroads. The country which now forms the circle of Swabia had been left desert in the age of Augustus by the emigration of its ancient inhabitants. The fertility of the soil soon attracted a new colony from the adjacent provinces of Gaul. Crowds of adventurers, of a roaming temper and of desperate fortunes, occupied the doubtful possession, and acknowledged by the payment of tithes the majesty of the empire. To protect these new subjects, a line of frontier garrisons was gradually extended from the Rhine to the Danube. About the reign of Hadrian, when that mode of defence began to be practised, these garrisons were connected and covered by a strong entrenchment of trees and palisades. In the place of so rude a bulwark, the emperor Probar constructed a stone wall of a considerable height, 
and strengthened it by towers at convenient distances. From the neighbourhood of Neustadt and Ratisbon on the Danube, it stretched across hills, valleys, rivers, and morasses as far as Wimpfen on the Necker, and at length terminated on the banks of the Rhine, after a winding course of near two hundred miles. This important barrier, uniting the two mighty streams that protected the provinces of Europe, seemed to fill up the vacant space through which the barbarians, and particularly the Alemanni, could penetrate with the greatest facility into the heart of the empire. But the experience of the world, from China to Britain, has exposed the vain attempt of fortifying any extensive tract of country. An active enemy, who can select and vary his points of attack, must, in the end, discover some feeble spot on some unguarded moment. The strength, as well as the attention, of the defenders is divided, and such are the blind effects of terror on the finest troops that a line broken in a single place is almost instantly deserted. The fate of the wall which Probar erected may confirm the general observation. Within a few years after his death, it was overthrown by the alimony. Its scattered ruins universally ascribed to the power of the daemon, now serve only to excite the wonder of the Swabian peasant. Among the useful conditions of peace imposed by Probar on the vanquished nations of Germany was the obligation of supplying the Roman army with 16,000 recruits, the bravest and most robust of their youth. The emperor dispersed them through all the provinces and distributed this dangerous reinforcement in small bands of 50 or 60 each among the national troops judiciously observing that the aid which the republic derived from the barbarians should be felt but not seen. Their aid was now become necessary. The feeble elegance of Italy and the internal provinces could no longer support the weight of arms. The hardy frontiers of the Rhine and Danube still produced minds and bodies equal to the labours of the camp but a perpetual series of wars had gradually diminished their numbers. The infrequency of marriage and the ruin of agriculture affected the principles of population, and not only destroyed the strength of the present, but intercepted the hope of future generations. The wisdom of Probar embraced a great and beneficial plan of replenishing the exhausted frontiers by new colonies of captive or fugitive barbarians, on whom he bestowed lands, cattle, instruments of husbandry, and every encouragement that might engage them to educate a race of soldiers for the service of the Republic. Into Britain, and most probably into Cambridgeshire, he transported a considerable body of vandals, the impossibility of an escape reconciled them to their situation, and in the subsequent troubles of that island they approved themselves the most faithful servants of the state. 
Great numbers of Franks and Jeopardy were settled on the banks of the Danube and the Rhine. A hundred thousand Bastarnae, expelled from their own country, cheerfully accepted an establishment in Thrace, and soon imbibed the manners and sentiments of Roman subjects. But the expectations of Probar were too often disappointed. The impatience and idleness of the barbarians could ill brook the slow labours of agriculture. Their unconquerable love of freedom, rising against despotism, provoked them into hasty rebellions, alike fatal to themselves and to the provinces, nor could these artificial supplies, however repeated by succeeding emperors, restore the important limit of Gaul and Illyricum to its ancient and native vigour. Of all the barbarians who abandoned their new settlements and disturbed the public tranquillity, a very small number returned to their own country. For a short season they might wander in arms through the empire, but in the end they were surely destroyed by the power of a warlike emperor. The successful rashness of a party of Franks was attended, however, with such memorable consequences that it ought not to be passed unnoticed. They had been established by Probar on the sea coast of Pontus, with a view of strengthening the frontier against the inroads of the Alani. A fleet stationed in one of the harbours of the Exine fell into the hands of the Franks, and they resolved, through unknown seas, to explore their way from the mouth of the Phasis to that of the Rhine. They easily escaped through the Bosphorus and the Hellespont, and cruising along the Mediterranean, indulged their appetite for revenge and plunder by frequent descents on the unsuspecting shores of Asia, Greece, and Africa. The opulent city of Syracuse, in which port the natives of Athens and Carthage had formerly been sunk, was sacked by a handful of barbarians, who massacred the greatest part of the trembling inhabitants. From the island of Sicily, the Franks proceeded to the columns of Hercules, trusted themselves to the ocean, coasted round Spain and Gaul, and steering their triumphant course through the British Channel, at length finished their surprising voyage by landing in safety on the Batavian or Frisian shores. The example of their success, instructing their countrymen to conceive the advantages and to despise the dangers of the sea, pointed out to their enterprising spirit a new road to wealth and glory. Notwithstanding the vigilance and activity of Probar, it was almost impossible that he could at once contain in obedience every part of his wide-extended dominions. The barbarians, who broke their chains, had seized the favourable opportunity of a domestic war. When the emperor marched to the relief of Gaul, he devolved the command of the east on Saturnius. That general, a man of merit and experience, was driven into rebellion by the absence of his sovereign, the levity of the Alexandrian people the pressing instances of his friends, and his own fears, but from the moment of his elevation 
he never entertained a hope of empire, or even of life. Alas, he said, the Republic has lost a useful servant, and the rashness of an hour has destroyed the services of many years. You know not, continued he, the misery of sovereign power. A sword is perpetually suspended over our head. We dread our very guards. We distrust our companions. The choice of action or of repose is no longer in our disposition, nor is there any age or character or conduct that can protect us from the censure of envy. In thus exalting me to the throne, you have doomed me to a life of cares, and to an untimely fate. The only consolation which remains is the assurance that I shall not fall alone. But as the former part of his prediction was verified by the victory, so the latter was disappointed by the clemency of Probar. That amiable prince attempted even to save the unhappy Saturninus from the fury of the soldiers. He had more than once solicited the usurper himself to place some confidence in the mercy of the sovereign who so highly esteemed his character, that he had punished, as a malicious informer, the first who related the improbable news of his disaffection. Saturninus might, perhaps, have embraced the generous offer, had he not been restrained by the obstinate distrust of his adherence. Their guilt was deeper, and their hopes were more sanguine than those of their experienced leader. The revolt of Saturninus was scarcely extinguished in the east, before new troubles were excited in the west by the rebellion of Bonusus and Proculus in Gaul. The most distinguished merit of those two officers was their respective prowess, of the one in the combats of Bacchish, of the other in those of Venice. Yet neither of them was destitute of courage and capacity, and both sustained with honour the august character which the fear of punishment had engaged them to assume, till they sunk at length beneath the superior genius of Proba. He used the victory with his accustomed moderation, and spared the fortune as well as the lives of their innocent families. The arms of Probar had now suppressed all the foreign and domestic enemies of the state. His mild but steady administration confirmed the re-establishment of the public tranquillity, nor was there left in the provinces a hostile barbarian, a tyrant or even a robber, to revive the memory of past disorders. It was time that the emperor should revisit Rome, and celebrate his own glory and the general happiness. The triumph due to the valour of Probar was conducted with a magnificence suitable to his fortune, and the people who had so lately admired the trophies of Orleans gazed with equal pleasure on those of his heroic successor. We cannot, on this occasion, forget the desperate courage of about fourscore gladiators, reserved, with near six hundred others, for the inhuman sports of the amphitheatre. Disdaining to shed their blood for the amusement of the populace, 
they killed their keepers, broke from the place of their confinement, and filled the streets of Rome with blood and confusion. After an obstinate resistance, they were overpowered and cut in pieces by the regular forces, but they obtained at least an honourable death and the satisfaction of a just revenge. The military discipline which reigned in the camps of Probar was less cruel than that of Orleans, but it was equally rigid and exact. The latter had punished the irregularities of the soldiers with unrelenting severity. The former prevented them by employing the legions in constant and useful labours. When Probar commanded in Egypt, he executed many considerable works for the splendour and benefit of that rich country. The navigation of the Nile, so important to Rome itself, was improved, and temples, buildings, porticoes, and palaces were constructed by the hands of the soldiers, who acted by turns as architects, as engineers, and as husbandmen. It was reported of Hannibal that in order to preserve his troops from the dangerous temptations of idleness, he had obliged them to form large plantations of olive trees along the coast of Africa. From a similar principle, Probar exercised his legions in covering with rich vineyards the hills of Gaul and Pannonia, and two considerable spots are described which were entirely dug and planted by military labour. One of these, known under the name of Mount Elmo, was situated near Sirmium, the country where Probar was born, for which he ever retained a partial affection, and whose gratitude he endeavoured to secure, by converting into tillage a large and unhealthy tract of marshy ground, an army thus employed constituted perhaps the most useful, as well as the bravest portion of Roman subjects. But in the prosecution of a favourite scheme, the best of men, satisfied with the rectitude of their intentions, are subject to forget the bounds of moderation, nor did Probar himself sufficiently consult the patience and disposition of his fierce legionaries. The dangers of the military profession seem only to be compensated by a life of pleasure and idleness, but if the duties of the soldier are incessantly aggravated by the labours of the peasant, he will at last sink under the intolerable burden, or shake it off with indignation. The imprudence of Probar is said to have inflamed the discontent of his troops, more attentive to the interests of mankind than to those of the army, he expressed the vain hope that, by the establishment of universal peace, he should soon abolish the necessity of a standing and mercenary force. The unguarded expression proved fatal to him. In one of the hottest days of summer, as he severely urged the unwholesome labour of drainage, the masses of Sirmium, the soldiers, impatient of fatigue, on a sudden threw down their tools, grasped their arms, and broke out into a furious mutiny. The emperor, conscious of his danger, took refuge in a lofty tower, 
constructed for the purpose of surveying the progress of the work. The tower was instantly forced, and a thousand swords were plunged at once into the bosom of the unfortunate probar. The rage of the troops subsided as soon as it had been gratified. They then lamented their fatal rashness, forgot the severity of the emperor, whom they had massacred, and hastened to perpetuate by an honourable monument the memory of his virtues and victories. When the legions had indulged their grief and repentance for the death of Probar, their unanimous consent declared Carus, his praetorian prefect, the most deserving of the imperial throne. Every circumstance that relates to this prince appears of a mixed and doubtful nature. He gloried in the title of Roman citizen, and affected to compare the purity of his blood with the foreign and even barbarous origin of the preceding emperors. Yet the most inquisitive of his contemporaries, very far from admitting his claim, have variously deduced his own birth, or that of his parents, from Ilricum, from Gaul, or from Africa. Though a soldier, he had received a learned education, though a senator, he was invested with the first dignity of the army, and in an age when the civil and military professions began to be irrecoverably separated from each other, they were united in the person of Carus. Notwithstanding the severe justice which he exercised against the assassins of Probar, to whose favour and esteem he was highly indebted, he could not escape the suspicion of being accessory to a deed from whence he derived the principal advantage. He enjoyed, at least, before his elevation, an acknowledged character of virtue and abilities, but his austere temper insensibly degenerated into moroseness and cruelty and the imperfect writers of his life almost hesitate whether they shall not rank him in the number of Roman tyrants. When Carus assumed the purple, he was about sixty years of age, and his two sons, Carinus and Numerian, had already attained the season of manhood. The authority of the Senate expired with Probar, nor was the repentance of the soldiers displayed by the same dutiful regard for the civil power, which they had testified after the unfortunate death of Orleon. The election of Carus was decided without expecting the approbation of the Senate, and the new emperor contented himself with announcing, in a cold and stately epistle, that he had ascended the vacant throne, a behaviour so very opposite to that of his amiable predecessor afforded no favourable presage of the new reign, and the Romans, deprived of power and freedom, asserted their privilege of licentious murmurs. The voice of congratulation and flattery was not, however, silent and we may still peruse, with pleasure and contempt, and a cloak which was composed on the accession of the Emperor Carus. Two shepherds, avoiding the noontide heat, retire into the cave of Faunus. On a spreading beach they discover some recent characters. 
the rural deity had described in prophetic verses the felicity promised to the empire under the reign of so great a prince faunus hails the approach of that hero who receiving on his shoulders the sinking weight of the roman world shall extinguish war and faction and once again restore the innocence and security of the golden age it is more than probable that these elegant trifles never reached the ears of a veteran general who with the consent of the legions was preparing to execute the long suspended design of the persian war before his departure for this distant expedition carus conferred on his two sons carinus and numerian the title of caesar and investing the former with almost an equal share of the imperial power directed the young prince first to suppress some troubles which had arisen in gaul and afterwards to fix the seat of his residence at rome and to assume the government of the western provinces the safety of illyricum was confirmed by a memorable defeat of the Sarmatians. Sixteen thousand of those barbarians remained on the field of battle, and the number of captives amounted to twenty thousand. The old emperor, animated with the fame and prospect of victory, pursued his march in the midst of winter through the countries of Thrace and Asia Minor, and at length, with his younger son, Numerian, arrived on the confines of the Persian monarchy. There, encamping on the summit of a lofty mountain, he pointed out to his troops the opulence and luxury of the enemy whom they were about to invade. The successor of Artaxerxes, Varans, or Brahram, though he had subdued the Segestans, one of the most warlike nations of Upper Asia, was alarmed at the approach of the Romans, and endeavoured to retard their progress by a negotiation of peace. His ambassadors entered the camp about sunset, at the time when the troops were satisfying their hunger with a frugal repast. The Persians expressed their desire of being introduced to the presence of the Roman emperor, they were at length conducted to a soldier who was seated on the grass a piece of stale bacon and a few hard peas composed his supper a coarse woolen garment of purple was the only circumstance that announced his dignity the conference was conducted with the same disregard of courtly elegance carus taking off a cap which he wore to conceal his baldness assured the ambassadors that unless their masters acknowledged the superiority of rome he would speedily render persia as naked of trees as his own head was destitute of hair notwithstanding some traces of art and preparation we may discover in this scene the manners of carus and the severe simplicity which the martial princes who succeeded gallienus had already restored in the Roman camps. The ministers of the great king trembled and retired. The threats of Carus were not without effect. He ravaged Mesopotamia, cut in pieces whatever opposed his passage, 
made himself master of the great cities of Seleucia and Cestaphon, which seemed to have surrendered without resistance, and carried his victorious arms beyond the Tigris. He had seized the favorable moment for an invasion. The Persian councils were distracted by domestic factions, and the greater part of their forces were detained on the frontiers of India. Rome and the East received with transports the news of such important advantages. Flattery and hope painted in the most lively colors the fall of Persia, the conquest of Arabia, the submission of Egypt, and a lasting deliverance from the inroads of the Scythian nations. But the reign of Carus was destined to expose the vanity of predictions. They were scarcely uttered before they were contradicted by his death, an event attended with such ambiguous circumstances, that it may be related in a letter from his own secretary to the prefect of the city. Carus, says he, our dearest emperor, was confined by sickness to his bed, when a furious tempest arose in the camp. The darkness which overspread the sky was so thick that we could no longer distinguish each other, and the incessant flashes of lightning took from us the knowledge of all that passed in the general confusion. Immediately after the most violent clap of thunder, we heard a sudden cry that the emperor was dead, and it soon appeared that his chamberlains, in a rage of grief, had set fire to the royal pavilion a circumstance which gave rise to the report that Carus was killed by lightning. But, as far as we have been able to investigate the truth, his death was the natural effect of his disorder. End of chapter 12, part 2